Oh, man. Glenn Fleischman, you're back on the show. We have so much to talk about. Uh, we'll never get to all of it, but we can try. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good problem to have. Thanks for having me back. Oh. It's a what quiet do, week. <laughs> what do you want to start with? I say we start Jeopardy. with... Uh, let's start Jeopardy. with Jeopardy. So, number one, I knew this. I don't know that we've ever really spoken about it at length, and if we have, oh, I've, wow. I've forgotten about it. But you were on Jeopardy... Uh, when? When were you on? 2000. I taped in August 2012. My episodes went up uh, October 2012. And I won. I won two episodes by the skin of my teeth, is how I describe it. Uh, I still had my... Uh, now I'm too old. I've, it's a young man's game, young person's game. Uh, but I won two episodes and over $30,000, um, which is kind of neat, because my whole life people had said, you should go on Jeopardy. You seem to remember a lot of <laughs> trivia and things that aren't important. And I was like, yes, I do. <laughs> And it's well, you got to both. It's at least two skills. It's more, you know, it's like any, it, it, like any kind of athletic competition. It's multivariate. You need, you obviously need to know the trivia, but you've also got to be fast. I don't, I don't have the. I, there's no way, even if I got like an exception and and got to buzz in ten seconds late, like uh, I wouldn't get shut out on Jeopardy. I would, I would get a couple in. Um, but I'm too slow, and I've always it's, been too slow. My mind it is, is a really. It's you saw that thing. Uh, There's an article a few months ago about how they've finally done the metabolic testing on grandmaster chess players, mm. and yes. those folks they burn like thousands of calories a day. Yes. So they'd always said it. People in the chess world have said, you know, this may seem not that demanding, but in fact, we are we. You know, we can lose 15 pounds over a tournament. Everyone's like, yeah, yeah, you little nerds or whatever. So anyway, they finally started doing some of the real uh, lab testing. And these guys are burning like they're like they're doing the Tour de France practically, and so they now the best chess grandmasters now have uh, nutritionists. They have a plan for like you know carbo loading or protein loading. They work out like athletes between all the chess practice they do with their coaches and themselves, and it makes a huge. I mean, it's like you need the physical uh, edge to play that game, and I think that's like wonderful and hilarious that it took this long for anyone to actually believe them. I totally saw that, and and the basic explanation. I did see that story. I'll put it in the show notes. I swear to God, That's I just wrote it down. But it's <laughs> it, it, the basic idea is that the human brain is uh, com comparisons between the human brain and and com our computers today, and the idea of you know how do we get AI to work like a human brain? Blah 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 blah. It's you know it's a decades old thing and and part of science fiction. But at some fundamental level, the brain is like a computer, and the harder it works, the more energy it consumes. Yeah. It totally consumes calories to do to to intensely concentrate on something, such as, for example, grandmaster level chess, which it, it you know I I think everybody I don't see how anybody could dispute that that a, a game like chess or Go or something like that takes intense competition, uh, intense concentration. Um, and it consumes large amounts, way more uh, serious amounts of, of uh, calories, like you said, yeah, like it, over the course of like a, a week long or ten day match, it, it they could lose fifteen pounds. Yeah, they need they need guys with panniers coming up and like handing them energy bars and yeah. and can't. I mean, but it is really. I think it was like five. I want to say it was five or six thousand calories a day. You know, a normal human. Right. Adult person is somewhere in the two to three thousand calories is what you consume with you know normal activity. So it is getting into this like uh, 
high uh, athletic thing. So I think about that with Jeopardy. Like Jeopardy is a very funny game, right? Because uh, at at its face value, when you play it at home, it looks like a trivia game with some timing. And then when you play it in reality, and I, and I, I was kind of prepped for it when I went in. I'd read a bunch of books uh, by people. Uh, I always cite Bob Harris as the prisoner of uh, Trebekistan is a wonderful book because it's half memoir. And Bob is a very interesting and lovely fellow. And he's done a lot of interesting things in his life, including, uh, you know, writing for TV and being involved in microloans and whatever. But this book is like, it looks like it's a story about winning on Jeopardy and a strategy guide. And then it becomes sort of memoir. And so anyway, from that book, I only, I say a big chunk of why I won two games is strategies that he described in the book that I wouldn't have known otherwise. And it's, um, he understood how to bet, and that was, uh, I remember Arthur Chu, who had a good run, I think 15-day run a few years ago. Arthur Chu drove people nuts because he jumped all over the board, mm -hmm. which you know has now become more of a standard playing style, uh, and had been a style occasionally before him. Uh, but he really understood how to bet. And James Holzhauer was a demon in, in betting, and I had no idea. So I went in there from that book having a so, – so you need to know how to wager. You need to have fast reflexes to buzz in on time. You need to be able to have that fast memory recall. So you see it, you know, you know it, you buzz it in and you can produce the sounds from your mouth um, and do it in this incredibly, you know, in front of an odd is an odd is a live studio audience. And uh, uh, and it's like, uh, anyway, the, here's the funny thing. I described the experience as being uh, like the, you know, in the Willy Wonka movie, the original one with Mike TV. Mm -hmm. uh, and he he gets onto the TV set and he like stands in the TV and he's beamed in the t into the TV and he's tiny. When you walk onto the Jeopardy set, it is exactly. I mean, not like I thought there was CG or something, but um, it is exactly like you see. So it is weirdly like walking into a TV set. Well, here's the funny part. Last year, Paris Lemon, the guy who played Mike TV in the movie, was on Jeopardy. <laughs> really, I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh yeah, he didn't win. Alex did not ask him about the movie, um, but everyone's like, wait a minute, that's Mike TV up there. And his wife had actually played previously on Jeopardy, and I believe won a little bit. Huh. Uh, one of the things that I've always enjoyed, and, and these two shows have been on, man, as, almost as long as I can remember, uh, Jeopardy and Wheel of Fortune, and mm. they're paired. I think they're paired in syndication. Most I markets, yeah. I don't know if there's any. I've never been aware of a market where they're not um where i live here in the philadelphia market they've always been on jeopardy at seven wheel of fortune seven thirty. Um, oh we're backwards oh we are you first. really yeah we get wheel first then jeopardy isn't that weird oh uh well i've always thought that that order made sense because Je mm -hmm. Je you watch jeopardy first and then you feel dumb and then you watch wheel of fortune and, <laughs> and you feel really smart you're like <laughs> Because <laughs> you can shout all that you know. You, you it's easy to shout out the answer you know before the contestants can because they they you know they don't have to buzz in. There's no reflexes. They can they just say I would like to solve the puzzle, right? And then right. they give the guess. So it, you know as soon as it's pretty obvious and you can you know and you're good at that sort of uh, puzzle solving. Uh, you know, you, it's a lot easier to feel smart watching Wheel of Fortune than watching Jeopardy. So I always felt I always felt that the Jeopardy then Wheel of Fortune order uh, is the right order. 
Yeah, and you got to kind of calm down as opposed yeah. to key yourself up at the end. So the other thing, so some of the things I've read about, and I, I've watched for years, never was tempted to go on, like I said, I know. And, and you know, like I, I was on the quiz bowl team or whatever they called it in high school and, and did okay at at that level. But, you know, Jeopardy is obviously, you know, it's like saying you played high school basketball versus, you know, you played in the pros or played even, mm-hmm. even in college, you know. Um, you know, there's a definite difference between being a recreational high school quiz bowl player and and you know the a league but the one thing i didn't know until and i still am not clear about it is when you're allowed to buzz in oh yeah 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 so it's uh and this is the funny thing so i read this story recently i think it was while the this greatest of all time tournament was going on someone wrote a clever story and i think it was a might have been a jeopardy former contestant that um jeopardy is the quietest show of any game show you can think of. And I, I'd never thought of it. I've watched the show my whole life. I was on the show and I never thought of it. And they said, really, the, the buzzing device, it's a, we call, you know, Jeopardy calls it a signaling device. It doesn't buzz. Right. There's no sound when you click in. There's a little polite eh, eh, sound if your time runs out for a question. Right. And right. the Daily Double thing does that, you know, kind right. of like special TV thing. But otherwise, it's really a pretty in the in the Jeopardy music, and I was like, "Wow, that's wild!" So, so you don't have a lot of there. There's very little oral cues or timing. So, when you're standing uh, behind the podium, you're looking at the game board, and when they show the game board at home, they frame it so you can't see that on the left and right are a set of lights. And uh, Alex reads the clue, and the moment he stops, he reaches the end of the clue. There's one of the producers of the show is sitting at the stage watching and listening to him and hits an unlock button. When that producer hits the unlock button and it is the same person typically over a season, I think I made me one person for many years now. The lights on both sides of the board go out so that, you know, you can or they light up in that funny. I think they go. I can't remember if they light up. Or not. I, I think they light up. Sorry. Right. They light up to indicate that you can ring in. And at that point, you can buzz in. If you buzz in before the the uh, signals are unlocked, then you are locked out for something like, I think it's a half a second. But, huh. you know, it's substantial in that world. So some Jeopardy players listen to Alex's cadence and uh, time themselves to figure out when he's done and the producer is going to click the button and they time it to that. Other people watch for uh, the lights. So like uh, uh, Ken Jennings is a Alex's cadence person. Uh, James Holtzauer said he follows the looking at the lights thing. So you can't say like mm. one or the other gives you the championship skills. Mm. Clearly, because the two best players in Jeopardy's history, basically, are two of the very best players, uh, have different strategies. But it's that's the thing is because you get locked out. Yeah. Um, ap- apparently, I think in the very early Jeopardy games, maybe um, in the first season, because it started in the 60s, you could ring it at any time, and apparently it was very frustrating. Like, the host didn't like it. Uh, it was Art Fleming in those days, and right. I think it did not test that well because people wanted to hear the whole question because it's meant for home viewers. Right. And if you don't hear the whole question, then you don't have time to think of an answer. If someone's if it's like, what is the, well, you, know, you know, that's it, then it, the show is too fast and weird. Yeah. I always assumed because it doesn't make a a buzz or a bleep or anything when somebody buzzes in. And it, it it's interesting because most game shows throughout history with some kind of buzzer clicker yeah. thing, it, it, you know, makes some kind of noise. I think of the uh, uh, the family feud, you know, has the, the big red thing that you slap your hand on. Absolutely. Um, but it, but it, the, the, the gist of those games makes sense that there's a sound effect, whereas Jeopardy 
it, I would guess easily 95% of questions get at least one guess. Oh, and there's another sound effect. There's a sound effect when nobody um, when nobody takes a guess at a question. Oh, yeah. It's like a... Or something uh, like, like a bloop, bloop. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, it's, but, it's true. But, it's most, but be, because every question does get at least one answer, it doesn't even make it, it makes sense that there's no buzz because it would be a nonstop string of buzzes. You know, the buzz w- isn't helpful if it's every single thing. You know, it's almost like um, uh, the way that in movies, when people are typing on computers, every time they click the mouse or type a key, it beeps, <laughs> right? Like, bloop, 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 bloop. I'm, I'm, I'm hacking your computer. Bloop, 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 bloop. Exactly, right? exactly. It doesn't make any sense. It would drive you crazy if your computer beeped every time you <laughs> typed a key. I, I think it would be very distracting if every time you, you buzzed in on Jeopardy, it, it made a noise or something. But I, as a viewer at, on TV, I have assumed for decades that you were allowed to buzz in whenever you wanted to, but Alex Trebek would continue reading the question regardless. And then when he's done reading, they cut to the podium and whoever buzzed in first at whatever point, theirs is the podium that's lit up and they get to answer. I did not realize that you can't, you can't click in, you can't buzz in, whatever you want to, I guess buzz is the wrong word. You can't click in until Trebek is done reading. I I really didn't realize that, but that's interesting because it, it gives you more time. I always thought that there must be a tremendous advantage to uh, people who could read fast because they could mm-hmm. buzz in, but there's not. You 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 have at least as long as it takes Trebek to to uh, read the question. Had no idea, and I kind of feel like I kind of feel like they there should be some indication of that on the show. I mean, it's you know too late now, I guess, to change it. But uh, yeah, it's, I don't think I understood. I think you. Yeah, because they never discuss it on the show, right. right? You have to. You only know it if you read about it, and uh, but you you can tell. Yeah, I guess they never. I think they never decided because they could have said at the beginning of every episode. Alex could have said uh, contestants can't ring in until the question is finished reading, and it's possible. I don't remember. It's possible they said that in decades past, and maybe yeah. they stopped because everyone knew, but and you know, new reviewers. But I don't. I don't remember ever hearing that. And um, it, but it becomes this wild thing because. Uh, when Ken Jennings went on his his winning streak in 2004, uh, after I forget how long he had been playing, how many games he'd won, and the producers are like, "This is terrible." I mean, this is great, but it's also terrible. No one is ever going to beat a guy because he has now played more games of Jeopardy than right. anyone. Like, uh, like remember that until right. uh, it was just before the season he was on, you could only win five games in a row. Then right. you got a car yeah. or two cars. Some, it was the end of the season, and they didn't have a choice. They'd give you two cars. So Bob Harris got two cars, Brad Butter got two cars, you know, right. and then you could sell them. You paid the tax on them, and some people sold them. But so uh, Ken had, you know, on game six or seven, if you exclude the tournament play, he had played the most regular games of Jeopardy of anyone ever. So after 20 games, he has massive amounts of experience that nobody else playing him can. So right. the producers started to do more training. So, um, uh, and this is well in advance when I got there in 2012. When you get there in the morning, there's a bunch, there's like a couple hours of orientation. Oh, John, can I tell you the funniest thing is, you know, those incredibly awkward stories, the little Alex chit chat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so this is the most it, important it, part of the it, show. Before, before Double Jeopardy. <laughs> before Double Jeopardy. Right. You spend so long. So when you apply to the show, you take a test, online test. Anyone could take it. Everyone should sign up for this if you have any trivia interest because it's, it's totally painless online. 
and they test like 100,000 people with each test. Then they select a few thousand to do in-person interviews and about 400 people a year, I think, go on the show, if I do the math right. And so once you get to the audition stage, before you even go in in person to audition in your city or wherever, they're like, uh, write up three stories of the kind you would hear in Jeopardy, like an anecdote about your life, something that's interesting. Then you do the audition. Then they make you tell those stories. Then they ask you for more stories. Then when you get to Culver City, California, to the Sony Pictures Studios, you spend so much time. It is like the most time you spend at the show is crafting your terrible little anecdote Ugh. for chit-chat because it's the hardest thing to get people to have a little story. So they work on that part, and it's distracting too, which is good. Um, but then the other thing is you play several games. So they do, um, I think we spent, you know, an hour or two in orientation, making sure everyone understands all the all the law involved, because there's a lot of game show law since the quiz show scandal, uh, and, and how you can, if you feel like something unfair, there's a representative there that you can talk to directly to complain. Um, and, and that sometimes results in changes. And uh, oh, it's very rare, but it does. Anyway, so then you go on stage, and uh, one of the uh, contestant coordinators plays Alex, and you run through with the podiums. They sweep people through. They run through categories. And the producer who unlocks the signaling system is actually there. And before Ken Jennings, that person wasn't. Just anyone was there managing it. And they decided it was such an advantage that Ken had learned the timing between question and the producer so well that they had to have that person there or it was not a, you know, it was a too unfair for other people playing. Interesting. Uh, but in the end, Ken Jennings won on a final Jeopardy, so he didn't win on, uh, he didn't lose on uh, regular gameplay. Hmm. I'm trying to think what else. Oh, I, I have to ask, because this is the sort of thing I care about. Like, is the, uh, as they call it, the signal indicator, does it have a good feel in your hand? Is it a, is it a good feeling device? Does it have a good click to it? Yeah, it's, um, it's, uh, I'm trying to think what it feels like, because usually you don't, it doesn't click, you depress it. And you can, and some people have the style that you press it a lot in a row so that if you get in too early, you can still um, get in past the next person who hasn't signaled, if that makes sense. Right, get in at the so, quickest possible time after that. Yeah, I'm trying to remember. That's so funny when you say that. I don't think, they tell you to practice with a pen, and I did that. And actually, at the audition, they give you a cheapo Jeopardy branded pen, and I took that home, <laughs> and I sat there and practiced with that as the clicker. And that's a traditional thing. A serious, you know, like super high level players who go back to tournaments, uh, some of them have actually built training systems. They've had built for them by people often who work in the building, uh, the game show, you know, device building industry. They will buy a clicking system or a buzzer system to uh, to test. Uh, so they're, they're, you know, able to work on their skills. But it is athletic in that sense is, you know, if you can shave half a millisecond off your timing then you could come in first so i mean this is the other thing even when you're not playing at tournament level like the like the goat tournament you have um everybody on stage has been auditioned so that most of the time say two or three people will know the answer to any given question and, and some of them are a little harder and only one person or nobody knows or the person knows they don't ring in they're not secure enough but a lot of the time it's two um and and often all three and you're just working on timing to get in there so if your timing is a little bit worse, you could know the answer to nearly every question and still easily lose the game. Yeah, I, I totally understand that. It's fascinating. Um, also, what about the uh, the touch screen where you, uh, I guess you use it twice. First, you write your name. And so your name is written there on the, you know, in white, white pixels on a blue background. Okay, yeah. And then uh, for Final Jeopardy, you use it to to write your answer. Is is it 
What 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 is the user interface for that? Oh, it's it's terrible. It's really low resolution. It's really hard to do it. So when you see people with these really horribly written things in Final Jeopardy, they're barely legible. They they should really. I mean, I think the the um, <laughs> the technology has come a long way. I mean, twenty twelve maybe it was still you know acceptable, but in twenty twenty, I think they should have uh, upgraded those to slightly higher resolution and quality, perhaps. <laughs> I was actually really impressed. James Holtzauer would draw a different design, I think, almost every night after he started winning. And I was like, man, he yeah. really – he must have worked with some system that used a stylus and, uh, you know, crummy old input thing because uh, he he really actually got some good legible designs on his name. Before Final Jeopardy, do you uh... – now, for those of you, I mean, I'm assuming there's a, a big assumption here that people know what Jeopardy is. And I guess if, if you're listening from a, outside the U.S., maybe you don't. Sorry, but it's a really fun game. Um, but there's two rounds where you answer trivia questions and there's three contestants who buzz in. And But then in the final round, it's just one question. All they tell you in advance is the category, which often <laughs> is some kind of pun and doesn't give you... Sometimes you have a good guess what it's going to be about, sometimes not. And then what you, each contestant secretly wagers some amount of the money they've already won, all or nothing on whether they get, get the answer correct. And they do it in written form, of course, because, you know, and then they reveal them one at a time because otherwise, you know, how else would you do it? Um, do they give you like pen and paper so you can like work out the math? Because there's a lot, you know, there's a lot of strategy involved. Like if you're in first place, you want to basically want to bet enough so that if you're right, you'll win no matter what the second place contestant bets. So if the second place contestant bets every dollar they have, you want to make sure that if you're right, you still come out ahead. But you probably don't want to bet everything because then if everybody's wrong, you want to still have the most amount of money because that's that's ultimately all that matters. Do they give you a pen and paper to work that out? Yeah, see, John, I can tell that you gamble because oh yeah, <laughs> you you get it, you totally get it. That is that is the crux of it, and I've seen people lose games because they didn't do all the math. And yeah, they do. They literally give you a pencil and paper, and the thing they don't show you. This is the only thing you know. They say Jeopardy is not edited for answers. They sometimes edit it for or outcomes. They edit it for timing. So sometimes if it seems like people are playing boom, 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 it's because the episode went a little long. I mean, they have a you know, time for each round and they'll actually pull out people's like pauses between answering mm. or between buzzing and answer or whatever. So sometimes you're like, God, people are playing super fast. It's like, no, no, that's, that's the edit. But here's the thing they don't show you is Alex exposes the uh, final Jeopardy category. And we were watching during the, uh, the greatest of all time tournament and the whole family was watching and the category was something like presidents and Bibles. And we're like, Oh, what the, how do you, what? All right. Okay, sure. Something like that. Anyway, so after they said they go to commercial break. So on set, since they're obviously it's not a live show, they give you literally as much as time as you need. They put in um, partitions between contestants before you start, and then they give you as much time as you need to make the wager. So sometimes I think it might have been five plus minutes hmm. and they kind of push you along if it's taking a bit because the audience is there yeah, and it's yeah. restless and they won't give you forever but it's not like you have 10 seconds or 30 seconds to make the wager so on my uh was it my second game i well in other words basically yeah. the, the the basic thing you're trying to say is you have more than the commercial break which is probably yeah, yeah. Like, oh, probably right. like 90 seconds or two minutes 
Yeah, so we can have you can have yeah. five minutes. Whatever they bring out, they're so nice. The contestant coordinators they bring out water to you. They check on how you're doing. The whole show. I don't think I've said this so far. The whole show is the most humane experience. They do such good hiring. Everybody there is such a lovely person. I remember having great time with the sound guy, with the makeup people. Um, you know, just I went back to see uh, to a taping a few months later. One of the contestant coordinators saw me in the audience. They got me tickets. They give me a VIP like friend of Jeopardy sticker. <laughs> One of the contestant coordinators sees me, comes up, gives me a big hug. And I'm like, oh, it's such a lovely show. And I don't know how much that comes through, but it, they really do everything they can to make the contestants feel good. So anyway, so the final Jeopardy thing, I on my second game, I was very unsure about the category. And in the end, I got the wrong answer. I was not the number one. I don't think I had the most cash. So I had a bet so that the I would be left with enough money if I was wrong. And the person who had the most cash was wrong. And the person who had the third most cash was right. And that is what happened. The number one and number two person, this other this woman and myself, were both wrong. The third person bet everything and was right, and I beat him. And he huh. was so peeved. He kind of kept looking at the screen because he's like, he didn't really, I mean, so I didn't bet the maximum, which is what you'd expect because I only had a bet enough to beat, I knew I couldn't beat the number one person if she bet everything. So anyway, or she bet the maximum, she needed to beat my maximum. So I bet strategically, and that is the only reason I won that game. Right. There's a strategy there where you're thinking, what's, it's not so much how, how can I get the highest dollar amount? It's what is the, what can I do here that gives me the most likely yes. chance of winning? And in some cases, if you're behind, your most likely chance of winning is what if the what if the people ahead of me get get it wrong? Yeah, and this and what if we James all get Holtzauer's, it wrong or something? Yeah, like and that. James Holtzauer's thirty fourth game when he lost, people went nuts because he bet at a level where he's they're like he's throwing the game. Why do he throw the game? Do you get tired of playing? It's like no, he bet because he had a bet on the assumption that the woman who ultimately beat him, that uh, he needed to have enough money left to beat the number three player who in the event, actual event, I think was wrong. But if he had the right answer, the number two player would have had like $22,000 and James needed to wind up with 22,001. So he had to be that conservatively to beat her if she was wrong, the number one player anyway. But people went crazy. They were like, oh my God, why did he throw the game? Like, no, 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 let's do the math. Here are the, but there's like, eight possible outcomes and he bet correctly for every outcome in which he could win. Yeah. And uh, so anyway, the greatest of all, I think, I think that that wraps up uh, your firsthand experience on it. Oh yeah. Sorry. Uh, And that leads us to this greatest of all time tournament, which is fascinating. So the three contestants uh, were, I had this on a screenshot somewhere. It was Ken Jennings, who won 74 t- times in a yes. row. Um, what's the guy's name from Philly? James? Uh, Br- Brad Rudder. Brad Rudder. Yeah. Uh, not who's from... not as well known. Right. Because, not as well yeah. known because he originally played back in the five-time champion and you're out, but then wound up making his claim to greatest of all time by coming on their tournaments of champions where they would bring back five-time champions and play in like a tournament and he uh according to the jeopardy bio up until now had never lost to a human being before i guess he lost to the ibm watson one time in, a, in another one of these uh gimmicky special events 
Yeah, he he won. I think it was because there was a tournament of the champions and Depper, Jeopardy in the early two thousands was still popular enough that they did some primetime specials. And this one is the first one they've done in many years. And so they do like the ultimate tournament, the tournament one, and then they did some tournament of the decades, the blah blah blah. So he won. I think either he won four and was on the winning team. For the fifth, so he won like a million dollars, two million dollars, a million dollars, you know, three hundred that whatever it was, and he even got I think it was two hundred grand from the IBM Watson thing. So he racked up, I think it was four point four million dollars in Jeopardy play post his appearances, because um, he won like a hundred grand, including the car value on the original appearance, and then like four point three million after that. And Ken, he beat Ken Jennings. Uh, in four, four po- of those four, outings, four point seven million dollars total. Oh, four point. That's it, right. That includes the last tournament. So before that, and so Brad Rutter was uh, for a while the winningest. He'd won the most money of any person in game show history, American game show history. Then Ken briefly got ahead of him because Ken won some money in some non Jeopardy game shows. Then Brad won another tournament or two, and now Ken is the most winning uh, game show contestant of all time in america uh and then the dollar winning and then the third is the guy who uh, shot to fame i think over the summer just the the last in the last year late spring james james holzauer who really shook things up by playing in an unprecedented style um and what he's whole his claim to the best of all time is that he has all 15 of the top <laughs> single game winnings. So in other words, oh how much God. can you win on a single in one oh, single 30 minute match of Jeopardy? Uh spots 1 through 15 on the list are all James Holzauer and it really felt for a while like he had broken the game. But I always thought while he was on his run, I was like this is genius. And it, it, it happens in pro sports all the time where somebody – it doesn't really – or I shouldn't say all the time. But occasionally, like a coach or a team will come up with a strategy yeah. that nobody had ever seen before. Like when you and I were young – I don't know if you're – you're probably not – I know you're not a big sports guy, right? But I, I like the sports math more than the <laughs> – But but there is there, – in when I was in high school – so this is like around 1990, 1991 – there was a, a, a typical men's college. Well, actually, men's and women's scoring is pretty close. But in, in mm-hmm. college basketball, it's a 40-minute game. There used to be a 45-minute second shot clock. And a typical score of top teams is somewhere, you know, like a winning score is often somewhere around 70 to 80 points, you know. And, and you know, you know, there's a lot of variation. That's just the way it goes. So you might see a 50 to 55 game once in a while and sometimes there's high scoring teams that get um close to 90 and for a college game 100 points is a lot i mean mm-hmm. that that means you were really really off the charts um just because it's only 40 minutes whereas nba plays a 48 minute game and therefore those extra it's you know it's it, it, that's significantly longer and they have a shorter shot clock and they're better shooters because it's mm-hmm. the NBA versus college. So, you you know, NBA typically you, you don't win games with fewer than a hundred points. But in the nineties, there was this in, in, right around 1990, 91, there was this team at uh, called Loyola Marymount and oh, yeah. they were scoring uh, like 160, 170 points a game because they played like their pants were on fire 
all 40 minutes. So like, imagine like the way that you would coach the team. You don't have to be, you don't have to really know much about basketball. You just have to just have a basic idea of the game, but imagine you're down by six points with a minute and a half to play. The way that you would instruct your team to play is full court press, cover them as from end to end and try to trap them you know, don't just sit there and wait for them to shoot like a typical moment at basketball. Do whatever we can on defense. Double team whoever has the ball. Gamble everything. Gamble everything on every play defensively. And as soon as we get the ball, no matter what we do, try to get a shot off as quickly as we can. Don't dribble down the court, right? You, if you're not a sports fan. But, you, you know, you know basketball. You, you know, yeah, the other yeah. team scores. They give it to a guy and he, you know, dribbles the ball down the court. And then they start passing it around until somebody gets a shot. Loyola Marymount, there was no dribbling down the court. You oh. always, you passed it down the court. Yeah, yeah. And they would oh, so it's super fast right. game that way. Right. But it felt like and they never won the NCAA championship, but they were very good oh. and they did go far. Uh, they ended up with a tra- it was a terrible tragedy, actually, where there was a guy named. I mean, I, I hate to bring it all down, but there was a player on their team who actually in their best season at the peak of their powers. He, a guy named Hank Gathers actually died of a heart attack at practice. Oh, I remember that. That was one of those. That was one of those first p- prominent ones where people with a. Uh, Unknown heart to Yeah, right? exactly. And yeah, oh, was tra- I remember that. That was yeah. tragic. Yeah, there was no... Uh, I don't remember the team, but I remember him. Yeah, and... Uh, uh, well, and it was funny. I forget his teammate, but he had, it, there were two guys on the team who were better than everybody else, and mm-hmm. uh, his teammate... God, I'll try to get it for the show notes. But, like, in honor... They, then they had to go to the NCAA tournament, and yeah. uh, in honor of him, the guy was right-handed, but he uh, Hank Gathers was left-handed, so his teammate decided he would shoot all his free throws left-handed which sounds like a recipe for like hey that's you know maybe wear an armband or something instead but but he he shot like 85 percent from the free throws left-handed he was so good but anyway anyway it it just looked like you'd be watching espn and it just seemed crazy like 175 points or something like that It, it doesn't happen and uh Holzhauer's Jeopardy dolls just seemed like that. Like it just seemed like that. You're not supposed to. You're not supposed to score eighty five, ninety thousand dollars in a day in Jeopardy. Uh, or a hundred thirty three thousand. And I remember watching that episode and just you know my brain is melting right. because well, I mean so Roger Craig had the previous one day total. Uh, I mean, Ken Jennings had won, I think, 75 grand in one day. Right. And that had been a little bit of an outlier for Ken. Then Roger Craig, who is uh, is one of us, he's a computer uh, programmer, I think database specialist. And to prep for Jeopardy, he sucks down the J Archive, which is a, a user-created, constantly updated database of every Jeopardy clue and game and statistics. So I can find all my games there. People, So he sucked it down, with you know, which is fine. And he wrote software to re- to relentlessly train himself on all the common Jeopardy clues. So he went through and just was like, sl- you know, slashing and burning. He knew a lot of information and he bet super aggressively, but he only won, I think, nine games because he bet it all and lost. You know, he and, and James Holtzauer, Holtzauer had um, the knowledge. Like that guy, I cannot believe how quickly that guy has the answer to every goddamn thing in the world. Yeah. Like, I don't think I've ever met anybody who just has that much packed in his head. Yeah. Uh, Her head. By the way, uh, update here that the producers have told me that uh, Hank Gathers' teammate was Bo Kimball. 
That was the mm. fellow's name who shot left-handed. Anyway, I put it, I'll put it in the show notes. There's an article speculating how they would play the game. Yeah. They, so, so, while, so while Hotaller's playing, by the way, I don't know anything about him yet. And uh, there yeah. are some secret corners of the internet in which Jeopardy contestants talk to each other. <laughs> There's secret out. corners and for every, everything. Corners. And so a friend of mine tells me, hey, I got cast on the show. A guy you know in Seattle. So I'm going down to tape. And uh, he comes back and I'm like, I know I'm not going to ask you how to go. He said, he said, I had a great time or whatever. I'm like, oh, okay. So the show airs. It turns out he was played on the third game that Holtzauer played. Uh. And, and he made an incredibly strong showing. And Holtzauer, he and Holtzauer were contending neck and neck. And my friend wound up with like 17000 bucks at the end of Double Jeopardy. But Holtzauer had gotten like, I think, two Double Jeopardy or two Daily Doubles. So Holtzauer finishes up with like $42,000. But, you know, my friend had like they, they were neck and neck. And in any other game, my friend was playing at like yeah. a master level and you're playing against the grandmaster. And my friend would have won, you know, five or 10 or 15 shows, I think, if he hadn't been playing against the Holtzauer. That's unbelievable. But what but bad luck. Well, yeah. part, the other weird thing about Holtzauer is, is that um, he apparently a part of his uh, preparation was that he he apparently really studied where they put the daily doubles because oh, they're yeah, not yeah. they're not completely random and he strategically would play for them and i guess what he would do is avoid them at first to build up a bit of money so that he'd have something to wager and then strategically hunt for the daily doubles by jumping all over the board and it just and would just tend to push it all in and just try to double his money and build these insurmountable leads, you know. And and there were times when the matches they were obviously over, you know, twenty minutes into the show. Oh yeah, yeah. Because he he'd already hit two of the daily doubles, doubled his money both times, and there wasn't enough money on the board for anybody to get. <laughs> I was crying watching some of those. Right, these poor people. The basic math is that to have a chance to win, you have to be at least within half of whoever's in first place. So, if the person's in first place has already has thirty thousand dollars, you need at least fifteen thousand to have a chance. Because otherwise, you know, the the person in front is not going to bet enough. You know, unless they're a maniac, they're not going to bet enough to risk losing on on the final Jeopardy. Yeah, yeah. So that's the amazing part is Holtzauer would go into Final Jeopardy with so much money that he could bet and still win if he was wrong, and he still would get all day, you know, these 133000 total. I mean, a typical game of Jeopardy finishes with the winner getting somewhere between, I don't know, like twelve dollars and $30,000. Uh, Jeff Duncan, longtime uh, uh, technology writer, musician, another Seattle guy, he was also on. He did not play huh. James Holtzauer. He won over $30,000. He, he only won one game. But he blew through that and won like thirty-one grand in one day, and we're all like, "Wow, it was great!" What is up with tidbits contributors and winning on Jeopardy? I know we now have the highest uh, highest percentage of, <laughs> of any publications <laughs> members. It is funny though. I um I if you go if I go to certain kinds of events uh, that are for like quirky or artistic people or certain kinds of tech things, there are always. Uh, I went to a Kickstarter thing. And I think there were two other Jeopardy contestants, including another winner, uh, who were among the, the attendees. It is just a kind of personality type. Yeah. So anyway, they held this tournament, yeah. the greatest of all time, with those three fellows. Ken Jennings, who won the most episodes. Brad Rutter, who had won the most total money over the years. And Holtzauer, who had the single 
single record things. Buzzsaw. And, and they created a, a primetime special, and the, the rules – I thought the rules were very well designed. The idea yeah. was that each, each episode – would be two Jeopardy matches. So it was a, instead of a 30-minute, you know, one, th- one time through Jeopardy, it was two. And those two Jeopardy matches combined, you know, whatever you finished with would, it's, would give you the winner of the day. And the first person who won three days would be crowned the greatest of all time. And so it was indeterminate how long the tournament would last. In theory... It could have lasted nine matches if they'd all won twice, and then the last one would be, you know, would be the whoever won would would hit three, or it could have only lasted three, you know. And I, I, my fear was that, and you asked me before it started, or or maybe I had started, but I told you I hadn't started watching it. And by the way, if you want to watch, you could pause the podcast now. Because we haven't spoiled who won yet. That's it right. is totally worth watching. If you really want to, you could pause this show right now. It'll it'll sit there in your podcast player, and you could take a couple of nights and watch it. Um, they're it's on, on Hulu. It's on Hulu. It, it yeah. is on Hulu. So anybody who has That's Hulu uh, can get those episodes. It is really good. And so if if you've been listening to me and Glenn and you think, this sounds great, I would like to watch it, before we tell you who won... Uh, you could pause this podcast right now and go watch on Hulu over the next uh, couple of nights or whenever you have time to watch Hulu. It's a lot of fun. But from now forward, we're, we're, we'll, we'll reveal spoilers. As we say in the incomparable, fire off the spoiler horn. All right. You asked me who I was rooting for, and, oh, yeah, I, yeah. and I was rooting for Ken Jennings because I, I've never seen – I'm not a daily Jeopardy watcher. I don't watch all the time. I watched a lot more when I was younger and when I lived at – you know, I mean really young. I mean, I mean like, geez, like you know, living at home. So you know, we're talking like 30, 30 years ago. Um, I but I did watch Jennings during his streak and and then once Holtzauer started I started watching and I was fascinated and it makes sense to me that Holtzauer is you know his profession is that he's apparently a professional gambler <laughs> yeah exactly um which I know a lot of people think is like a myth that there are people who could like live in Vegas and be professional oh, really? gamblers no um, no it's a well the the blackjack angle is probably it's really tough uh I mean, you gotta I, have a big stake is the thing. You have a big stake and you get marginal returns yeah. if you know how to play it right. So uh, you don't make a ton of money. But poker, in the end. but poker is real. I forget. Does Holtzauer play poker or is he only bet I, sports? Uh, I know he says he bets sports, and sports is tough. I think he does mostly sports. Right. And I think he's been. I think he's generally pretty good at it, as you yeah. can tell. He's got undeterred. Uh, I mean, I think you have to be. Yeah. I think you have to pursue a strategy if you're a professional, right? You pursue a strategy and you don't second guess yourself all the time because. You're trying to get a certain level of uh, consistent return, and it might only be like 3%, right? Like a grocery store or something. But you yeah. get comped rooms. You get other kinds of free things along yeah. the way besides money. Yeah. The basic idea and when you bet pro sports is you have to bet $110 to win 100 uh, That's that, And yeah. that 10% difference is the VIG. So if you bet right. 100 times and you bet $100 each time, you win $100 uh, – or if you win, you know, if 50-50, you, you just lose 110 every time you lose and you win 100 every time you win and that 10% eventually kills you. You have to win. That's if you win 50% of the time. 
uh, you have to win. I think it's fifty four point three percent of the time to break. Yeah, it's really even. slight. It's not but, that. It doesn't sound that much higher than fifty percent, which is why people like me love to bet on sports. <laughs> but in practice, it, they're dastardly good. The 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 people who set the betting lines, they're dastardly good at. Uh, setting them in a way that more or less makes it 50-50. You know, that's, they're not trying to, Vegas isn't trying to beat you, beat everybody all the time. That's impossible. All they want is for half the people to win and half the people to lose. And they just collect that 10% and it's a lot of money. But in, you know, if you're good enough to pick the games where the line is mathematically off, where you see that, you know, they're, you know the uh, for the Super Bowl, the Kansas City Chiefs are at last I checked are currently favored by one point five points over the San Francisco Forty ers If you've got like a mathematical model for how you know based on the the season stats, you know maybe probably geared towards their more recent games and their more recent results, and you've also follow along and you know who's injured and etc. And you can, you know, figure out that the line really ought to be that Kansas City or that San Francisco should be favored by one point. Well, then you realize it's a really good bet mathematically to bet on San Francisco. That doesn't mean your bet is going to win. It just means, you know, that and if you do that more often than not, maybe you can win 57 percent of the time and stay ahead of the VIG, something like that. Definitely possible. And you watch Holdsauer play Jeopardy and I believe it. (laughs) But poker, yeah. poker is the other game where you can easily be a professional gambler because you're not playing against the house. You're playing right, against right. other players. And right. The house all, always gets its cut, so they don't they, care. Yeah, they just take a small cut out of the pot, out of every pot, and that's it. And you just have to be both better than other players and better enough than the typical other players to compensate for the, you know, like 3 or 4% that the house takes out of every pot. Definitely a lot of professional poker players. Um, anyway, uh, he definitely played like a gambler, not like a quiz show contestant. Yeah, he he was just uh, he, he had incredible. Yeah, I mean, he had basically he was he was like a machine too. He was he was relentless. Um, you know, he's not very emotional uh, because he's in work mode, right? So people gave him there was some criticism about like, boy, he seems like a like an uncaring person or whatever, and to be like, well, no, he's got a game face. And this is a job. He's come in here thinking about this, and he kind of talked about it that way. His plan was to win as much money as he could, and he did. And not that he didn't have a good time, I don't think, but, um, you know, the way he talks about his family, he kept putting in birth dates as the right. wagers. He was writing in messages. Um, you know, he talked about his grandmother, his Japanese immigrant who didn't speak much English and how he promised to go on the show. And, she, you know, and, the, and oh, and they watched it together. Like, you know, is, he's actually, I think, a very sweet guy. Yeah. Who comes across as many people like us in this technology world? Sometimes we come across as a little in our heads, and I so I was very sympathetic with the uh, the way he came off. Uh, but he really he, it was a job, and he came in every day, and he just went bam, 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 bam. And if he lost, it would be like whatever, because he just um, he just was so good at racking up the money. He'd already won all the money you could possibly want. Yeah. So at that point, I mean, I think he talked about that a little bit. It's like, how do you go all in? When you can lose everything, it's like, well, if you no longer care, if it's a wager and you're not looking at it as dollars, it's like a one or zero. It's right. not a, you know, $50,000 right. because it's fake money. It's not real money until you take it home. Right. And I think and I think he had played that strategy better than anyone has ever been able to play it. Yeah. 
So uh, my fear, I was rooting for Ken Jennings, I, not strongly, because they're all interesting people and they all seem very likable. And it's just such an interesting premise. But if I had to say I was rooting for someone in advance, it was Ken Jennings. But my fear was that Holtzauer was just going to win, every, you know, win, yeah. just clean the plate. It just seemed like there was a chance there that he's just unstoppable and that he's too good on the buzzer. Um even against someone like Ken Jennings, who, you know, obviously, like you said, has tremendous buzzer experience. Um, but I think, what did it go? It, it So it was, it was uh, Ken Jennings, Jennings won, won first. Yeah, by like 200 points for the, yes. the right. two games. Right. And it was like, oh, it's going to be like that. Uh, and then James won the second game by a pretty good margin. Right. And then Ken kind of demolished james in in the third yeah. episode and then the fourth it was kind of the same thing like there were a couple tricky questions in the fourth where ken could have lost practically everything and 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 really tanked and james would have won by a huge amount but ken got the answer correctly for some big bets he yeah did, and, and he said later he said I, if i'm playing against james holtzauer i have to play james holtzauer style so he would go in all in in a way that ken right. typically had in another play right and it, and it worked for him. Yeah. And and Ken had, didn't seem to have as much success in previous, like, Tournament of Champion things compared to Brad Rudder. And Rudder got more or less swept out. He was really not competitive in any of the four days. So, anyway, Ken Jennings was the winner. He won the first, third, and fourth. But on the second, uh, Holtzauer creamed everybody. Yeah. And uh, a couple of Jennings wins really came down to, like, getting one answer correct on a, yeah, like a, exactly. on a push and alex even uh, alex trebek even called him on it where on a lot of his answers he he was really answering like a question oh, yeah. like and and it you know ken jennings has been on the show enough times that trebek knows that he's not like <laughs> doing it for dramatic dramatic effect like he was making his best guess on a lot and got them right yeah, like the nullification one about yeah, uh, yeah. states' rights. And I was like, we're all at, you know, I think that all four of us in the family were watching. And, you know, the kids are actively studying some of this stuff. So it's a little fresher to them than my wife and I. And we're all like, is it, was that this or that? Was it, we're like, and I think maybe my older said nullification. I forget somebody yeah. in the house, I think said it. And Jenny said nullification. We're all like, oh, it doesn't sound right. And it's like, yep, that was it. It's like, oh my God. But it was great TV and it had uh, huge ratings too. It was yeah. uh, one of the... Uh, I think the top rated show in its slot, it did very well um, yeah. all four nights. Oh, it was a great idea. Um... It was fun. It was fun. No, Brett, I wrote a piece. Uh, Motherboard asked me if I'd write something up uh, after game three before game four. And I did some statistical analysis. And um, Brad Rutter was only answering. He was only, only buzzed in half as frequently as the other two to start with. He was wrong about 11% of the time. And Ken was wrong slightly more. Then I'm sorry, James is wrong slightly more than Ken, and Ken was right on every daily double he got in yeah. the first three games. So you could see, just from the the standpoint of play over three games, it looked like Ken was playing just. I mean, this is kind of like the po or the uh, the gambling thing. Ken was playing just slightly better, not crazily better, but just enough, and that edge meant that every time he won on a daily double, he was able to leverage it ahead. I don't know how old they all are. Um... Oh, oh. Uh, I forgot the exact range. We're about 10 years in age apart. Uh, uh, Holtzauer is the youngest in his 30s. 
Uh, Brad Rutter is uh, about five years older, and Ken's about five years older. And then I think I think there's about a ten year age. Ken is the oldest by huh. by, uh, and he was talking about, you know, kind of hanging up his spurs. He's like I'm an old man. I don't know, and being yeah. forty three or something. 45, I don't know. He said, and I don't know if I'll do it. And he's now he said he's not going to play anymore. Like he said, this was, I can't top this. All I'm right. going out, you know, hand it over to the next folks. Yeah. Uh, Roll well, Rudder even said during one of the, hey, let's talk about the champions things that he, he, he could tell that he's lost a step since his, you know, Jeopardy Prime 15 years ago, or t- I guess close, I don't know, 20 years ago, whenever it was. Yeah, um, and the tournaments, I mean, he's played tournaments more recently, but. The tournament play is different because you're you're beating. I mean, even though you're going head to head against someone like Ken Jennings, you kind of work your way up. So you're not playing every game against the best people in the world or the two other best. I mean, the way I look at it is, Brad Rutter had never played against the two best players in Jeopardy history, only one, right. and against two of them. And you know, I couldn't win a single game today. I mean, I was stumped like the entire first game board of the first game of this run i was like what oh my god and the second i was better but like i couldn't i couldn't win a game today i just don't i don't have the speed yeah or necessarily the recall uh, yeah and the one that really was shows how smart these guys are and how good they are were the, the a couple of days they had the categories where it's like some kind of like two different things and you have to put them together into a pun Oh my God, that one! Yeah, that was hilarious. Uh, I, I I think I could get some of those if you gave me half an hour, and that would be one like, of them. Boom! They're yeah. like buzz. Is it? Blah, blah, blah. You're like Jesus. What? Yeah. How does your brain work? Anyway, I had a great time watching. Uh, all right, let me take a break here and tell everybody about Clear. Clear makes your life safer, simpler, and more secure. With Clear, your eyes and your fingertips get you through security faster at airport stadiums and other venues. Never run to your gate again. Clear helps you get through security with the tap of a finger so you can get to your gate faster and reduce pre-flight stress. You are your ID. Start getting through security with a tap. Clear replaces the need for physical ID cards using your eyes and fingertips to get you through security. Because you, your biometrics, are the best ID out there. Reminds me a lot of 2001. I just went to see it again last year when it was re-released into theaters. I had forced my son to wait. He'd never seen the movie before. And Haywood Floyd, top security expert for the U.S. government, when he gets to the moon base, Clavius, how does he get through security? With his biometrics, a little retinal scan, looks through his eyes. Well, that's what clear is like. It's just like 2001 has finally caught up with us. You go to the airport, you sail right through security. Uh, What you do, here's how you do it. You create your account online before you go to the airport. Once you get to the airport, go to the line for clear, and a clear ambassador will be there to help you finish the process of signing up, and then you can immediately use clear. Clear helps you get through security faster in 65-plus airports. But it's not just airports. Up stadiums and other venues, too. A whole bunch of stadiums, Major League Baseball, NFL football. These leagues now have policies that implement airport-style security before you get in the stadium. It's a big pain in the butt. But guess what? If they have clear, you sail right through, just like you did in the old days before there was onerous security like that at stadiums. And they have family plans. If you're traveling with your family, up to three family members can be added at a discounted rate. And kids under 18 are free when traveling with just one clear member. Totally free if you have kids under 18. Uh, 
Clear is the absolute best way to get through airport security, and it works great with TSA PreCheck, too. Right now, listeners of the talk show can get their first two months of Clear absolutely free. Go to clearme.com, C-L-E-A-R-M-E.com, clearme.com slash talk show, and use that code talk show. That's clearme.com slash talk show with code talk show, and you will get free two months of clear. Go sign up, sail through the airport like you never have before. My thanks to clear for sponsoring the talk show. Next topic. What do you think? iPhone encryption? Never, never gets old, does it? I've been writing about it a lot. I, I, I really, really feel like it's the sort of thing that needs to be nipped in the bud like it's not worth waiting until it, it, it if to me the DOJ gets its way and gets legislation proposed to limit it like it really needs to be nipped in the bud as a bad idea um i think people who listen to the show and follow my site know the basic story but basically there's this Pensacola shooter this guy who shot up a navy base and he had two iPhones and he and uh, shot a couple of people, and he's dead now. Um, but the federal government would like to get access to his phones. And um, Apple has provided uh, as much information from his iCloud accounts as they could, apparently measuring in the gigabytes. Um, but Attorney General William Barr is is raising hay that it's not it's not right, or according to him, that the FBI, that law enforcement officials can't just quote unquote get into iPhones, um, you know, when they have a court order, et cetera, et cetera. And Apple's answer is more or less, we can't, we can't help you. Um, although they haven't definitively said can't, I guess, you know, and, and there's some ambiguity over that. And I feel like I've, I've over the years, I've lost track of exactly how this works and what literally what we know can and can't be done. You know what I mean? Well, yeah, because they're right. The, the fundamental thing is that starting with um, oh, I've lost track is the five S it's starting with when Apple built a secure enclave in as a separate ship uh, into the iPhone architecture. They effectively abrogated their ability to extract information that uh, like the passcode right. that would decrypt the phone uh, and because they designed the system around uh, pushing all of the generation of key material that would allow decryption uh, or access to each device. So the issue is, and I think this came up with the, the San Bernardino uh, shooters a few years ago when this previously came up is Apple had said, um, uh, we'd have to create what they would call a government OS. We'd have to create a special OS, be able to load it on the machine, and this OS would allow more rapid calculation. It would bypass the uh, the uh, limits on lockouts that be, that uh, Apple started to add, uh, you know, alongside Secure Enclave. So the issue e even isn't, so there's like multiple issues. One is the current iOS and iPadOS, is the, the hardware architecture is designed to prevent rapid fire brute force cracking. So you can't just enter a bunch of different passcodes. 
so the was a gray, not gray bar, gray uh, gray lock. Yeah, uh, it's the one right. They they and maybe some other folks had ostensibly allegedly or, developed or systems. Gray shift is it gray lock? Gray shift, yes. Gray sh- <laughs> and their product is gray key. Gray key right. is the little uh, sort of like i Mac Mini sized. That's thank you device. Very good. Yeah, celebrate and gray shift are the companies. That's it. Right. But at least the two. They claim to be able to break in, and they seem to have been able to bypass uh, hardware and software. Well, I guess it has to be baked into hardware protections and protections in the in the uh, certified OS that would allow uh, them to then do brute force cracking and crack shorter keys. And as you know, as the audience I'm sure knows, the longer a key is or the more complicated it is, you know, a four-digit key can be solved very quickly, a pin. Six-digit takes quite a bit longer. If you do something like me, a 20 mixed character <laughs> alphanumeric, the heat death of the universe couldn't come too soon. But, you know, really it's years or something to go through all the iterations as rapidly as the software could take them with no throttle in place. Right. So Apple said, hey, we're not going to make in the San Bernardino case, we're not going to make a government OS. We don't want to be compelled to do this. That would bypass the brute force cracking speed is my recollection right and right. then the other part was we can't give you the key because we built our system so that we don't have access to it it's locked away you'd have to break open the secure enclave in like a clean lab and even then the chip would probably self-destruct i mean that's they didn't say that but that's the way these chips are built you wouldn't you shouldn't be able to extract information from them even with like scanning electron microscopes right then the, the issue today. Oh, well, sorry. Go ahead. Well, I, I, I think if my understanding is correct, and this is complicated enough where I feel like I'm uncertain, but tell me if you agree. I, I think the best way to think about it is that there's two. I don't want to say operating systems. Let's just say systems on an iPhone, and it just goes for iPad too. There's iOS, which is what is the traditional operating system that runs the device as a computer. As we know it, a thing with the CPU and RAM and storage and input output and USB support through the lightning connector or the USB-C port on an iPad Pro. And it's an operating system that runs on a computer. And Apple does its best to keep that secure. They also have at a hardware level, I believe it is true that that an iOS device will not accept an operating system that has not been signed by Apple. That That's correct. And if there you, was if a, you jailbreak, if you jailbreak a device, you're essentially figuring out a way to bypass, to take a, modifying, take a yeah. bug and exploit the bug to run arbitrary code. And then that code does something to defeat Apple, but, but you can't really create your own version of iOS and get it to install on an iOS device without having it be signed by Apple. And when I say signed by Apple, there was a story I, I, I was looking for it today and couldn't find it. I'll have to see if I can find it. But there was a story a couple of years ago that to sign a, a, a release of oh, iOS, yeah, it is it really is like something out of a Mission Impossible movie. You know, like, yeah, there was a question about whether people were trying to subvert the engineers at Apple, there's only a few people at Apple, it's a very small number, who have like the fingerprint and retinal and whatever stuff that allows them to access the thing that allows them to sign right. the operating system. And so if you subvert those people, could you then conceivably, right? So even who they are, 
is kept secret, and it was a concern, I think. You know, and it, it, you know, you think like, oh, you know, nothing really works like that, where there's a secure underground vault with with locked doors and guards, and oh no, no, you know, <laughs> like, uh, you know, and people believe it for like a nuclear submarine where two two members of the crew more than what is possibly arm's distance away, you know, like let's say at least. 10 feet away have to put keys that they keep with them around their neck 24 hours a day and simultaneously turn the two keys. So two officers have to turn keys that couldn't possibly be done, you know, just physically by, by one person. There's a system like that in place where like two Apple employees have to use physical objects. I don't know if they're keys. They're probably, you know, uh, uh, more complicated some, than like, a, you know, a, a physical key. But yeah, it's, like a, it's an encrypted, it's a device itself that contains encrypted information right. that has to be inserted. Right. And they both have to do it in, in a room and can only be done in a room whose right. location Apple literally won't, won't disclose the, the, the actual location. I mean, presumably it's somewhere in Cupertino on one of Apple's campuses, you know, but who knows? Um, I mean, just for practicality's sake, you know, you would assume it's somewhere in Cupertino or, and perhaps they've moved it from the old Infinite One campus to the new one. But I, I, I honestly believe it's actually underground. Uh, only a handful of Apple employees have access. There's obviously some kind of plan in place for what happens if one of the people involved, you know, it, it proverbially gets hit by a bus. Um but it really is that difficult. It is not, it, it, you know, really sounds like something out of a Mission Impossible or James Bond movie or something like that. So to no, the, just to get the, a version of the, iOS that 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 it, that these devices will sign at a hardware level, they really won't sign unless they can check. This is a real thing. In a, there's a bunch of um, <clears throat> excuse me. There's a bunch of industries. There's a bunch of kinds of things around the world that are like this. I mean, this is one of the most critical because it's device specific and i assume google has a very similar yeah uh thing i remember a few years ago i had, I had to look it up while you're talking because i want to remember the detail is there was a ceremony in which uh to sign the root for dns so you know how there's all mm -hmm. these root um dot com and and whatever uh, different domains but there's also root servers that um are the root of authority for all of dns and there's a bunch of them run redundantly around the world well in order to sign the root certificate to start the process to get a uh, secure and encrypted form of DNS underway, they had to get a bunch of people together. They all got together and they all had to be in the same physical place to sign um, these keys with the specific cryptographic uh, hardware that they owned. And uh, I was talking to uh, the folks at Let's Encrypt that have, um, uh, they, they would offer free SSL certificates or sorry, HTTPS certificates for websites talking to their CEO last year. And he said one of the most expensive things they own is a device that is designed to protect their root. And, um, you know, it's tamper resistant. It's It's got various safeguards. It's in a secure facility that has to meet certain international standards. And um, this is a real it's it's a it's not casual. Right. Now, I think you also need years ago. It was much more casual. And now it is I mean, certainly not now. Right. In addition to the fact that the the iOS devices at a hardware level will not accept a a version of iOS that is cryptographically signed provably by Apple. It, it, I also believe, and I think you would know, correct me if I'm wrong, that you cannot update. There's no way to update an iOS device 
offline. It also must be online to call back to Apple over HTT over SSL secure and make sure that Apple is still agreeing to sign this OS so that if, if there's a known bad version mm -hmm. of iOS, if Apple releases a version of iOS and then after it's out realizes we know that this version is compromised in some way by a bug, we're going to revoke the signing certificate for that. And then there's no way to get that version of iOS onto a device because it still, before it'll go, it has to call home to Apple securely and Apple has to say, yes, that is a, still a valid signed version of iOS. No, you're totally right. And I don't think I thought about it that way, but it's correct. Mac OS, you can still update offline with an installer that's signed and so forth. Right. But I, there, there are revocation processes, but I think if your Mac were not on the internet, I believe it's still I, I think so too. feasible. But yeah, so whenever you see, if you're using iTunes to restore well, an and image. I, and I think that's because mm -hmm. that Apple still acknowledges that there are, there are, scenarios oh yeah yeah where people have macs that are in rooms that you know aren't their uh, internet access isn't allowed oh yeah no that makes total yeah that's that's right and yeah but so every iphone and ipad when you install an update directly from the device it has that verifying stage which may seem mystifying because right. didn't it just download it it's like right. yes it did but a cracker could conceivably force Right. A device to sideload. I mean, there's you know management tools. Maybe they could get an update right. that's not legit. So all but it still has to phone home. All of this is to say is that Apple takes the security of iOS and the ability to only sign known good versions of iOS as mm -hmm. as uh, I don't know what more they can do other than to continue to hunt bugs and continue to look for better ways. But it, it literally is to the best of their abilities to keep iOS as secure as possible at every step of the way. That said, there are known exploits in iOS that allow people, and especially the older versions. What, what's the name of that one that came out in the bootloader, which is unfixable? There's there's a low-level oh. part of the operating system. It's in is the Is this New only York for Times. older devices? What is yeah, that? it the, was uh... fixed in, I think the last version affected was the iPhone X. Checkmate. Oh, checkmate. Yeah. C H E C K M and then the number eight because whoever found it, you know, is a hacker and, and names things that way. Um, but there's a there's a bug in the bootloader of every iPhone up to the iPhone ten generation. So I guess the iPhone eight would be included. Um, which unfortunately compromises iOS in a way and Apple can't fix it because the bootloader but is part of is is ROM. It, you know, to go. Right. Back, you, know, a, you don't really think about exploit. You, you don't, have to have physical uh, yeah. proximity. You have to have physical access to the device. Yeah, you do have to have physical yeah. access to the device. Um, but anyway, that said, they take as much. They do as much as they can to keep it secure. They fix that bootloader issue in the iPhone XS and the 11. Mm -hmm. um, but people can still get into iOS, and Apple fixes those bugs when they, as soon as they know about them. Um, but getting into iOS does not get you into the data on the device because right. the, the encryption of the device is that second system I alluded to earlier. So there's iOS, and it's not like Apple takes iOS security lightly. They take it as seriously as they can. But then there's the secure enclave. And the secure enclave isn't just 
a a secure storage device. It is a it's a system. It is in effect its own computer, um, and it it now like one of the things that they changed, I believe, is um, it. it so like there's an 80 millisecond delay. Anyway, when you type in right, your passcode, right. when you type in your password, passcode, whatever you have to unlock your phone, iOS doesn't, it takes the input. You tapping one, two, three, four on the keypad on the screen is obviously handled by iOS. But then iOS takes that, passes it to the secure enclave and says, here's a guess at the passcode to the encryption. Uh, it's the secure enclave that takes that guess and computes whether or not it's valid. And Apple has designed it. I, I don't think originally, I think it's one of the changes since the five S and I know that the secure enclave, your, your guess was right. It definitely coincides with the five S which is biometric authentication. Right. They offered encryption of yes, because they offered uh, that's it. Before that, you could encrypt your phone, but it was a slow process, right? And that was added in some iOS. But it's with the that's right. exactly with the fingerprint sensor. They right. very wisely, uh, and I think this is uh, you know not to criticize other smartphone makers, but whatever. Um, I think Apple from the very start said we're not going to store. Uh, any biometric information in a way that is retrievable in any fashion. So it's all one way into secure enclave. And then over time, they've expanded that to include like uh, Apple Pay and uh, right. Face ID and a bunch of other yeah. stuff. It's And, and third-party apps can throw stuff into secure right. enclave as well and have the same advantage. I don't know the inside story uh, of the timing of that. And, I, you know, I, I, I would love to know it if anybody out there does know it. But if it's true... It, that Apple, Apple in theory, might have had a Touch ID fingerprint sensor mm, mm -hmm. ready to go a year, two years before the 5S, but they were never going to use it until they also had the secure enclave. So in theory, I don't know which took longer to develop. Maybe they had this. I, I think it's quite possible that they might have had the fingerprint sensor ready to go before the secure enclave because i think if the secure enclave was ready to go a year or two years earlier they might have included it even before they had biometric authentication because it still would have been useful right it yeah, still absolutely. would have helped increase it i suspect right. that the fingerprint sensor and touch id that was introduced with the 5s was waiting for the secure enclave it's also true that the 5s was the first to go 64-bit on the on the A series chip and maybe that plays into it too. I don't know. But there were a couple of things that all had to come together for that to work. But I do know, I do I do know for a fact talking to people at Apple off the record that there was no way they were ever going to do the fingerprint sensor before they had the the secure enclave because there just no way that they would store any biometric information That's without it. Right. That's, I think that's exactly right. Is I would not be surprised. Right. The fingerprint sensor was among the more advanced ones at the time. It was more accurate and used the, you know, the capacitance and so forth. But I don't think anything they right. did was totally like so, uh, you know, uh, uh, what's the right word? Uh, uh, such a breakthrough that it yeah. wasn't, you know, that they were waiting. I'm sure they perfected it. They had more time. But the secure enclave, that marked a huge change. I mean, I, I was writing something for um, – uh, about the uh, YubiKey and the uh, for Fast Company, um, YubiKey finally was able to release a Lightning version of its uh, authentic external authenticating.
device because uh, Apple didn't support that until actually pretty recently in Safari for Mac OS. And then uh, they added it to iOS, but it seemed like it was coming to iOS. So they, so these guys did it. But so the, the YubiKey is part of the, um, it's essentially an external secure enclave at some level. It gives you some of the same protections that you get from a device-based secure chip in a, in a token, even though the token, you know, conceivably can be moved yeah. around. And uh, anyway, the thing is, I think that I, as I was researching this, I realized there had been this huge sea change. Is before Secure Enclave, the, you know, encryption was the top bar and verification. And there might have been some hardware steps, but they were, you know, workaroundable. And then Secure Enclave set the bar that everyone, you know, Microsoft now encourages and many... You can buy PCs, a large number of PCs that have the equivalent of a secure enclave in it. Uh, Google had to shift to it ultimately, so they certify devices with it. You know, and this the web authentication standard they got promoted. The whole FIDO2 standard is kind of built around having a, a one-way chip that can only produce sort of outputs based on inputs after it's been you know set up. So anyway, I, it's it was a big and important change, and no one should want us to go backwards. Right. From that, because it perfects, you know, protects people at every level, protects, mo you know, vast amounts of personal and commercial information and those people in government who um, who rely on it for security as well or as part right. of a security system. I do believe it is true that the f call it firmware. I, firmware seems like an outdated term to me, you know, yeah. uh, but let's call it the firmware that runs the secure enclave. I believe that Apple in a software update to iOS can update the firmware on the secure enclave. So there's aspects of the secure enclave that could that's that could get a bug fix if necessary. But the 80 sec 80 millisecond and and I always forget this. A millisecond is a thousandth of a second, so 80 milliseconds is 8 hundredths of a second, so 12 per second give or take, right? 12 times 8 is 9 uh, what what is 12 times 8? Uh, eighty uh, plus ninety six, yeah, ninety six. Yeah. <laughs> okay, nine hundred six. I had to do my, I had to do my trick. My trick for twelve times eight is eight times ten plus eight <laughs> times two, so that's ninety six. Um, so you know, roughly twelve per second, um, which doesn't, you know, sounds pretty fast. Um, but that that eighty millisecond computation time for taking iOS saying to the secure enclave, here's a password guess, one, two, three, four. Secure enclave takes it, does the computation. That computation runs in hardware mm -hmm. and that 80 mil. So there's no way that somebody could force a firmware update to the secure enclave to say, hey, how about you reduce the time uh, to zero? You know, how about you do it as fast as you can? Uh, that can't be done. That's actually implemented in hardware. And so 12 per second is the most guesses you can. And so basically the way these products that we know about work, Celebrite, the gray, I keep forgetting which is the pro gray key is the product from yeah. gray shift the company. They jailbreak iOS to get in so that they can talk to the secure enclave because there's no way to talk to the secure enclave from outside the iPhone. Um, and then once they're in, they install, they run software and the software talks to the secure enclave and starts running guesses as fast as it can. And then once they find it, then they, uh, it, like there was a story I linked to it a couple of days ago on Daring Fireball where somebody leaked 
to a security researcher two years ago how the gray key device works. Oh, and they, yeah, yeah. And they even had photographs. They even had some pictures of the software running. And it runs, and then it, when it finds the right passcode, it displays it on screen. And then you can unplug it from the device and then, I guess, restart start the iPhone and then enter the passcode that the device tells you what to do. Um, but even that software can only do 12 guesses per second. And uh, like you mentioned, I think before we started recording, that that doesn't mean that they start 0001, 000, or, you know, if they know it's six. Because I guess you know how long the, the passcode is just by – iOS gives up how long it is, right? Let me double – if I turn on my phone, if you do a pa- if you have a four or six digit passcode, I think yeah. does it disclose that right? Yeah, because you tap it shows it in- you how many circles. I, cause if you I- pick an alphanumeric passcode, though, if you choose that option, even if you have a short passcode, uh, then it's impossible <laughs> to know how long it is anymore. Which is what I did at some point when a security person like Rich Mogul or someone else yeah. said, "Yeah, six digits is probably not adequate." I was like, "Oh, okay, making the change now." Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's right. So uh, um, this is this is more true for uh, or more useful for breaking into databases that are hijacked online because, yeah. uh, and this is changing as well. But a lot of databases, the ones that were encrypted, were using a very weak uh, algorithm that was very easy to brute force through. SHA one, and that's been updated to later versions. A lot of databases, right. and then they've added another technique in a lot of online, you know, good online sites, so that no uh, cracking a password once doesn't help you crack the same password and use spy everyone on the same database. They're all seeded in a slightly different way. Uh, Salted is the word. But anyway, so those people, the people who are trying to crack uh, uh, exfiltrated databases, they have these huge, uh, you know, not rainbow tables, we used to call them is those still exist that were just, you know, essentially pre-cracked versions or pre, uh, sorry, pre-computed versions of passwords going through certain algorithms like SHA-1. But what they have now is there are, are well-known passwords. There's passwords right. that have been extracted. There's like a – I can't remember. If you go to uh, – I, I think that's more likely because I – Have you been pwned? I, I, I think that the, the SHA-1 computed versions of passwords are probably not that useful and certainly not useful not getting – useful anymore. Right, because everybody's yeah. going to hash them some way. And so they're not going – it's going to be the, the hash of the password – the hash, and then SHA-1 computed. And if you don't know that hash, there's knowing that list isn't going to help. Right. But so the, but I think this is still used in the same way is that uh, because of the computational right. overhead now being higher, people trying to crack those databases, they have like, you know, they know, oh, oh so it's, uh, have you been pwned, which I recommend right. everyone to sign up at. They have a list of, what is it, a billion? I don't know, it's hundreds of millions of passwords mm-hmm. that have been leaked in the clear online. They don't associate them with accounts. But researchers and others can see, can get access essentially to a huge set of passwords people have used. So what are the first passwords that are checked are the shortest ones from that list that are most commonly appeared. And, and right. then there's, you know, there's dictionary words, there's all these other things. So when you're brute for- forcing, you don't start with 0000, 0001, whatever. You use common letters right. and numbers. And then at some point you go into the brute force thing after everything common turns out not right. to work. Right, and I'm sure there's a similar similar list of uh, six digit passcodes, just numeric by mm-hmm. frequent frequency. And so instead of oh, starting yeah. at zeros, all zeros, you start at uh, some combination. And I forget what I was using recently. 
Uh, it wasn't that recent that I remember, but something where I had to enter a, a create a numeric passcode. Oh yeah, I I entered one and it said that one is commonly used, and it, I didn't oh, enter man, one two three great. four, and it was something that I didn't really care much about, which is why I don't even know what it was that I guessed. But let's say I just went to the four corners. I, uh, all right. right. Uh, so I did four corners in order, something like that, and it said that one is frequently used. Get you know, try something else. Um, Fascinating. Uh, but anyway, Jack Nikas, I'll put this link in the show notes. I just linked to it on Daring Fireball too. Had a good story, basically describing what we're trying to describe here, which is basically how does this actually work, and and in the context of this law enforcement campaign, does the FBI really need Apple's help? Um. Here's some numbers he got from talking to security researchers, and he listed them in his Twitter thread who who, who helped him out to get this story together. Um, average time it would take to guess different passcodes depending on length. Four numbers, seven minutes, six numbers, 11 hours, eight numbers, which I don't think is an option on iPhone, 46 no, days. You could... You could do it, but you wouldn't. Know. You'd have to do alphanumeric uh, right. digits. But yeah, right. Uh, Ten numbers would be twelve point five years. Now, if you use alphanumeric pass phrases, uh, a four character alphanumeric pass phrase. If you use letters and numbers, seven days. Six characters, seventy two years. Eight characters, <laughs> two hundred seventy six thousand years. Yeah, my, mine is like 20 characters. Yeah, it's probably it's unnecessary. If these numbers are right, that's unnecessary. Here's the thing. The entropy that he's talking about there the, the is if you're choosing actual random alphanumerics. Right. So if you pick the entire set of eight characters and it's, you know, capital Z, lowercase b, eight, exclamation point. Mine isn't that. I use the um, the uh, method that a lot of researchers promote and that you can do in one password now. Um, it's the diceware method. I have three words that have never appeared together hmm. in any work of literature. Ah. <laughs> and so they're long enough. So each of them is, is a, not a common word. And each of them is easy for me to remember. Cause I remember three things instead of, you know, eight, right. character, eight random things. Right. So I can type it in. And so it's critical for me for a passphrase that I can remember it mnemonically because I'm never going to have, I don't have it stored anywhere because it's my passphrase. Right. So I have to be able to remember it. I mean, I got stored in some, some careful ways, but anyway, so Mine is not because it's uh, the amount of entropy isn't high enough. Mine is probably crackable in oh I don't know a hundred thousand years yeah. if, because it, but it's, cause it's got real words in it. But still good enough. Maybe a million years good enough. I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's a balance between you know convenience and uh, security. I mean, and it's how much how much do you really care if somebody who had one of these devices could get your phone. I mean, for an awful lot yeah. of people, they don't like my, like my mom uses a, just a, a six digit passcode. Um, uh, she probably used four really. It, honestly, if somebody got her phone, honestly, she, the only thing she'd be upset about is that she needs a new phone. I mean, there's literally nothing, you know, somebody could read all of her email and, and she just doesn't care much. I mean, yeah. Then the other extreme is like you remember was it two plus years ago that the uh, that United Arab Emirates uh, uh, human rights activist that somebody burned three separate zero days against yeah. them. Yeah. Yeah. And you're like, oh my god, the amount of resources right. a government entity has to throw. So that's one extreme is three zero days yeah. all at once 
versus I don't have my recipe, my favorite recipe for ricotta pudding anymore. Right. You know, like we we do have there's a range of security, but like so, say your mom could use four, but like six is great because six deters anyone casual. Yeah. There's no system out there that is below. There's no casual forensic or personal cracking system. That would allow someone to get your mom's phone. She would have to piss someone off at a at a federal, <laughs> national security level, probably, or or mass murder level. So right. that's unless she's planning to do that, which I hope she's not. She's good. All right, but anyway, long story short, if you're listening and you're paranoid about this, which is reasonable, right? And just if it totally. just bothers you, if it if you just wake up in the middle, of, you know, at three in the morning, and and it just bothers you thinking about this idea. That there are devices out there that they can plug your iPhone into and hit a button and 12 hours later reveal your passcode. Uh, if it just makes you uneasy, switching to the alphanumeric passphrase and even making it, you know, like two words, two, two words separated by a, oh, yeah. a space or a dash or an underscore or something um, will literally make your data impregnable. Uh, at the iPhone level, I mean, unless the you know they'd, they'd have to hit like a greater than the number of subatomic particles in the universe to one shot to get it. Uh, yeah, I mean, quantum computing might put the lie to all this. At some well, point, no, but, but not, not with an iOS device because oh, I'm it would. Totally, no, right? You're Be totally right. You need so you know there have been experiments in the past at extracting the secure enclave and trying right. to do things like right. use electron microscopy. Right. And, other kinds of things, but but I think even that level, I think Apple is obviously they've got an amazing chip right. group. They're right. constantly improving the secure enclave, and it is it is resistant. Right. And when someone develops an attack, there or they even a theoretical one, they're right. working on that. Talking talking to a lot of people on Twitter recently, and and emailing some readers as I write about this, I, I and I wasn't as certain. I think I used to know this better. I'm probably going to forget it again if hopefully this whole thing dies down again. <laughs> the thing you have to remember is that. Cracking iOS doesn't crack your data at all. You right, have right. to get the secure enclave. And to yeah. to everybody's public knowledge, every public security expert's knowledge, the secure enclave on the iPhone has not been cracked. And on recent ones, that 80 millisecond computation time for a guess, you, you could, you know, uh, uh, your iPhone today could, could be found 40 years from now when we have quantum computers that are as much faster today's than today's computers were from 40 years ago with the Apollo program. Uh, and it still wouldn't help them crack the secure enclave if they still have to go through the secure enclave because that 80 millisecond per guest thing is still there. Now there might be, you know, who knows? There, you know, does the NSA have a crack for the secure enclave? Does does a foreign government have it? We don't know. But to I, I to everybody's to yeah. everybody's knowledge publicly, that hasn't happened. I think if they have it, if anyone has it, it's a nuclear bomb, right? Because they cannot de they can't deploy it because if they deployed it and it was ever discovered, right. then it renders it, you know, right. It's it's the end, and then Apple will fix. I mean, this is there's always an arms race about this kind of thing, but that that was why the three zero day thing I, I remember it so distinctly is uh, because once you burn these things, they're gone forever, and it, the system gets better. And it's not like there's always going to be flaws and things, but it's not like there are always going to be the same category of flaw. Um, there's not always going to be ones that that allow 
I mean, at some point, right. uh, iOS could be effectively impenetrable. I mean, I know that's like saying the Titanic is unsinkable. But, but, but to all intents and purposes, they have figured out enough ways to close down enough avenues that even the most determined government-funded whatever cannot find you know, a really effective way in. They only find little things around the edges, right? right? And, and that, that's not infeasible. And, you know, it, it, the secure enclave is very, very different. And and if you understand it, even at the layman's, layperson's version the level that I do, it's easy to see how much more defensible it is from Apple's perspective than iOS. Because iOS has lightning input, which also takes USB, uh, which is obviously some part of the jailbreaks that the gray key installed, because what we know about gray key is you plug it in via a lightning cable and it has, uh, obviously has networking. So there could be bugs in the networking stack. Mm -hmm. There was, there was an exploit recently somebody wrote about, uh, where there was an iMessage exploit where a carefully crafted URL, if tapped in iMessage oh, God. would exploit it. You know, there's all, all sorts of vectors like that because ios uh, from a functional level has to take input from so many ways whereas the secure enclave literally is physically connected to the hardware one way you know there's there's literally one way in and so there's and there's no other you know it's like the uh uh you know it's like defending a building with doors and windows and roof access and antennas versus like the underground bunker in uh you know the rocky mountains <laughs> where there's w one door and and a giant rocky mountain above it and a you know 20 story elevator going under down underground to get to the you know the secret bunker where the president will live you know in a nuclear war all right let me take a break here and thank our next sponsor to our good friends at hover hey Hover is a jumping off point for a ton of entrepreneurs, and they want you to start your business with a new domain name. They have over 300 domain name extensions, the top-level domains. You know, everybody knows .com, .net, .org. Uh, they've got over 300 of those to choose from when you want to build your brand online. No matter what you want to build, there's a domain name waiting for it. You'll find excellent tech support available to answer any questions you may have. Their support team doesn't upsell you. They only work hard to help you get online. They have free who free who is privacy protection. Man, the 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 domain name companies that charge you for privacy protection, what a racket. They have a super clean, well designed, well designed user experience and user interface and monthly sales on popular top-level domains. It's hard to see why anybody would go somewhere else. It's such a popular choice for getting a new domain name. Uh, one of my favorite features is the guessing. So if you enter uh, your intended domain name, dot whatever, and dot whatever isn't available, they give you a tremendous number of options to get something similar. They offer, like I said before, they offer best-in-class customer technical support, answer any questions you want. Super good security like Glenn and I were just talking about all these security things, one of the things you certainly don't want to have hijacked is a domain name. Hover has you covered on that regard. Best in class, locked in. You can make changes when you want to, but nobody else is going to be able to uh, jimmy their way into your account and steal your domain name. Uh, and like I said, over 300 domain name extensions to choose from. So grab your next domain name uh, at hover.com slash talk show 
The other thing they offer, let me just say this. The other thing they offer is a tremendous user experience for transferring existing domain names from another registrar. So if you have a registrar, you already have, even if you don't need a new domain name, if you just want to move your existing domain names from some crummy registrar to the best, which is Hover, they've got you covered on that regard too. Really, really easy. If you're putting it off because you think it's just a huge pain in the butt, don't worry about it. Really, they've got you covered. Uh, so go to hover.com slash talk show, get a 10% discount with their referral link. And uh, that's good for all new purchases. Make a name for yourself with Hover. Uh, next on my list was, uh, well, what do you want to talk about next? Let me ask would, you. Would, would you like to talk about fake faces? I love this topic. Yeah, let's, let's do this. Hey, let's do hey. this. It's been going on for a bit. So I wrote about this last year, um, and I, I certainly wasn't the first by any means, but I, I got kind of um, excited about the topic because it's a little contrarian at one level, and now it is blowing up, uh, and I have, uh, I'm have i kind of excited to see people covering it. So I think it's really important. So, so what it was is NVIDIA uh, has a research department, of course, and they're always working on interesting stuff they can do with their super fast GPUs because there are ever, all these graphics companies are selling computational power now to security researchers and, and other folks and uh, graphics professionals, of course, strangely also graphics professionals and gamers. And they came up with this thing. Uh, if I'm remembering, it's right. It's called style GAN and uh, GAN is a uh, generative, uh, generative adversarial networks. That's what it's called. Okay. So and it, what it is, is you pit machine learning algorithms against each other uh, to get closer and closer to a desired outcome. And what they figured out a way to do was to use a, a uh, what they called a style-based GAN or, or generator to use adversarial networks to make fake faces. So you feed in human, correct human faces in profile. And over time, the algorithm evolved enough and improved enough that they released a version of it and they've improved it since that makes fake static profile shots that look often exceedingly real. They look just like a real person and um, they can, you can dial in characteristics. So I like brown hair, red hair, a different kind of smile or face. So there's not a ton of control, but there is some. And every time you run the algorithm, what about, a, what about age? I presume you can. Yes, to some extent. And you can, uh, it's, I forget if age, no, I think that is a factor. So age and gender, hair color, eye color, glasses, all these things. And the first pass came out in, um, I want to say in 2018, and it made a little bit of a of a stir because the video for it was um, just outrageous. It kind of like blew people away. Uh, they you know done it for uh, one of the big graphics conferences or something, and uh, you were like, oh my! And they showed in real time, like not in real time, but they showed the input faces and then all the output faces, and they would zoom in and show more faces, and it was just like, oh my god! So a lot of the focus in machine learning based generation of material has been around um, like deep fakes, which are typically looking at video. So you create a video with enough different um, pictures of somebody or video of somebody and you can merge them with porn or you can make uh, Obama, uh, uh, sorry, Barack Obama um, say he loves uh, Osama bin Laden or whatever. And so that is very disturbing because the video can look very realistic. And while it can be pretty funky and easy to tell, for an informed person now, it's going to get better and better. But I thought there wasn't enough attention being paid to the still face 
version because it looks so good already. Right. So what happened is I wrote this piece last year uh, and talked to these researchers at the University of Washington that had built a, a page you can go to, and uh, they made a little test. So they put a real photo next to a generated one and ask you which one is real. <laughs> and, um, uh, y- you know, you'd be surprised. You'd run 20 of them through or something, or and you'd be like, man, I was wrong like 75% of the time. Right. <laughs> the fake ones look more real than maybe the real ones. So these algorithms continue to improve. And uh, there's a good article uh, recently. There's actually been a series this year already about two aspects of it. One, uh, or I guess three, right? A company is now offering this as a commercial service. So you go to them to get essentially model release free, royalty free images you can use as stock photography. Right. So there's no real person. So you don't have to get a release. You can use the picture any way you want. The second is businesses that are then um, creating these for, or, or uh, sorry, businesses that are using fake images now from that company and others to populate sites so they look like they're full of real people. And the third is, uh, there was a story just recently about Facebook having to, it's looking now, um, that was actually an issue. It used to be that you could reverse image search, right? Uh, uh, this ties into another story you're interested in too, right. too but right. you could reverse image search and find, well, that fake avatar on Twitter, oh, that's been used all over the place. It's on a thousand sites. Well, these, they can't reverse image search them because they're uniquely generated. So Facebook right. had to remove a bunch of profiles with fake pics. So I'm sort of fascinated by this because it is so good already that we are already in the crisis of reality about fake still pictures of people's faces. Yeah. And the one, you know, like using them for uh, royalty free stock photography I don't know who would be bothered by that other than someone who already owns, you know, a legit stock <laughs> right. photography thing and that's their business. I mean, in terms of uh, morality, that to me strikes me as, you know, fine. Like that's using technology to solve a problem. And if you want to create an advertisement that makes it look like there is a 35 year old woman who's very happy with her banking account you know, for your ad to say, sign up for our banks, you know, uh, low interest checking, whatever, uh, fine. Right. But using it to, uh, create the illusion of people who don't even don't really exist is really bothersome. And it really plays into the, 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 the flooding, flooding the zone to, to, for lack of a better term of misinformation, in the social network age, um, you know, to, to create thousands, tens of thousands. I mean, what's the limit, right? Once you're talking about a computer, you know, it's just like spam, right? Like imagine if you got as much physical mail as you get spam. I want to talk about spam later, but let me just, uh, uh, let me literally just take a look here at my junk mailbox, my junk mailbox, which I go through and empty right now, the, for my email accounts. And I have mail set to, throw out the old ones on a periodic basis i've got four thousand pieces of spam <laughs> oh my god i mean just one address alone let me see here from my main address i have eleven thousand pieces of spam and it only goes back to december 21 so <laughs> I, yeah because i have mail configured to to, to throw out old month old spam so in the last month, I've gotten 1,150 pieces of spam to one address. Uh, 
imagine if you got that much junk mail. You know, it'd be crazy. I mean, I feel like we get so much junk mail and marketing mail as it is, but that's, you know, six, seven pieces a day, you know, it, 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 because there's an actual cost to actual postage. You know, once you're talking digital, there's just no price. I mean, there have been AstroTurf campaigns. It's, you know, for a long time where you try to create the illusion of more people supporting some political issue or something uh, than actually exist. But in the digital age, it is just uh, it, it. it's just another ballpark. You can create thousands and, and the way that like algorithms work and the, you know, that to promote, you know, you all of a sudden you get stuff in your newsfeed on Facebook um, and Twitter, you know, does a lot of this now too. I don't really see stuff that seems fake in my Twitter and I don't use Facebook, but it's obviously a problem for a lot of people in terms of pushing a lot of this political propaganda, having an army of fake Facebook accounts is, is, it's not like a resource problem for Facebook. Facebook isn't trying to get rid of these accounts because it's using up computing power and, you know, running up their electricity bill and their storage bill. It's, it's ruining the integrity of their service. And I mean, as, and as down on Facebook and as I am, uh, I, I, I do, you know, I, I, and I think there's a lot of ethical problems at that company. I don't, I, I really think that they want their algorithms to be uh, uh, as they intend them to be. They don't, it's not like they, you know, they have an interest in not having them be overrun by fake, fake accounts. Mm-hmm. Right. And having a profile picture that is unique is, uh, you know, something that can be done. And, you know, and I, I've seen it. I, I, I've seen it when, when, fake accounts have been exposed over the years. I don't I don't I can't think of an example off the top of my head that I could put in the show notes, but maybe I can find one. But I've seen it where people have exposed it and found that the profile picture is from like a stock photography service. Oh, you know. Yeah, this this is what led me to this article is um I was interested in the topic, but I thought it'd been well covered. And then some folks in the Bitcoin world said they were being contacted by somebody who said she was a journalist and they looked at the profile photo. There were there were very little traces of who she was. They could not, and and she was contacting people privately. And everyone was getting a little nervous. Was she pulling a scam? Was she working for some, you know, exchange or whatever? And they discovered someone's like, you know, this is a fake photo because look at these. And they enlarged it and like look at these characteristics. This was generated by the StyleGAN software, and it almost certainly was because there's some if in the older the first version. There was some artifacting. There's certain uh, techniques you could tell, but you couldn't reverse image, reverse image search it because that's such an easy way to tell initially. Um, and if it doesn't work, you're like, well, this is probably a legitimate photo that someone posted. It's like, no, now you can't do that. What, what the scientists at the uh, or uh, academics at the University of Washington told me, they said there's two actually really easy tells, and this I thought this was brilliant, and it will change over time. The fake generated faces, you will never, the, uh, the current states of the algorithms, and this may continue indefinitely because of how the faces are generated, they can only produce that face once. Hmm. So you can use the same inputs and produce exactly the same face a second time, but you can't produce other versions of that face in different scenarios. So you right. can't, you, if you want to say, send me your left profile because I'm seeing your right profile, they can't. They can't, they're typically not yet in scenes. Um 
so you're not standing with a background in some kind of environment. You can't hold up. I mean, you can hold up today's paper, but right. you know that kind of thing. Uh, actually, what was hilarious about this research too is they've shown examples of um, taking like uh, shots from IKEA of rooms full of furniture, and they can train them, and it just produces random rooms full of very realistic looking sets of furniture that don't exist. And it is you can run these algorithms online, and you're just looking through it, and it is. There's something so weird about seeing the real world. Like faces are bad, but the real world being like your objects of material possessions being generated algorithmically from other photos is is like beyond surreal. Uh, it's you know, and and it, it's you know, it's it's one of my big fears as we go forward, and one of the things that I feel like we're already inundated with misinformation, uh, and I. I and I, it, one of the things that makes me so pessimistic, honestly, about t- democracy, you know, going forward, and I don't mean to be over dramatic, but one, it's a big frustration for my wife in particular mm. that um, that when video of some scandalous thing comes out, that it has it resonates so much more than just. Uh, somebody's, you know, what what should be, what ought to be taken equally is proof of it. Um, and uh, one example that comes to mind would be the uh, the Access Hollywood Trump tape that dropped oh, yeah. a month before the election four yeah. years ago. You know, this is the famous uh, tape where uh, Trump is saying that you know, when you're famous, you can do whatever you want. You can grab them by the pussy. Um, uh, uh, and that tape came out and, you know, again, and some people will say, well, who cares? He won anyway, but it, it hurt him. It hurt him severely at the, you know, in, in you know, polling, you know, he, if that tape had never come out, he would have won by more, most likely, maybe, you know, maybe half a percent, who knows, but these elections mm-hmm. have been so close that a half a percent in a few states makes a huge difference, right? But the, the yeah. tape matters. And my wife was so angry, not not after the election, but after that tape dropped, when this became this huge, huge uh, news cycle consuming scandal that's, you know, and had people saying, oh my God, this is so bad, he needs to drop out of the race. And my wife's response, uh, her anger was, there is absolutely nothing on that tape that we did not know Oh, for a fact yeah. about Donald yeah. Trump and the way he behaves around women and the way he thinks about them. And, and, you know, there were dozens and dozens of stories of exactly the same sort of thing from over the years, from decades ago. Mm-hmm. And so it anger. And I, my take is you just don't understand the psychological effect that like a, a videotape has, you know, and, and there are so many stories, you know, it, it it's a huge trend of the last decade for the better, you know, it's, for lack of a better catch-all phrase, the whole Me Too movement, but just the the whole holding accountable men mostly, but anybody behaving uh, either inappropriately or even worse, illegally. Mm -hmm. But it's when tapes come out, and, and I say tape, you know, videos, but, you know, some celebrity who comes out and there's something caught on tape... It is so much worse. There was, um, oh man, what's his name? Uh, uh, Ray Lewis was a football player. Oh no, Ray Rice. 
It was oh oh wait, Ray Lewis was the murderer. Right, oh Ray Lewis was the murderer. <laughs> Jesus Christ! All right, well we can leave this in, Caleb. All right, let me. I just want to get. At least I'm not. I'm not maligning oh someone. Ray Lewis the was ra- the murderer. The Ray Rice oh uh, was the running back for the Ravens, and he, you know, assaulted his wife badly, and. You know, there were, there were, you know, it was going to be repercussions. And, uh, but then all of a sudden, somebody, it happened at a hotel, somebody in, in an elevator, and somebody who worked at the hotel, the, the elevator had a security camera, you know, no surprise. And they leaked the tape, and the tape showed him more or less cold cocking his wife or his fiance, oh I guess. Yeah, I remember that video was uh, horrific. Yeah. Oh, it was absolutely horrific. I don't, I, I honestly, if you don't, uh, if you don't have the stomach for it, I don't, don't even look it up. It is truly a, a horrific video. I mean, it's, 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 it's a, a professional football player in the prime of his athleticism, just hitting a woman as hard as he can. And just, I mean, she just falls like a sack of potatoes, but it was only when the video came out that he really suffered the consequences he should have, whereas it was should have been evident to anybody paying attention that he was guilty. There was no need for a there shouldn't have been a need for a videotape for him to be suspended forever. But we're seeing this exactly. This is exactly what's going on in the impeachment uh, process right now is that uh, there is a hundred thousand pieces of circumstantial evidence right now that absolutely paint the picture that Trump was directing uh, you know, the, with the withholding of aid from Ukraine and so forth. And actually, at this point, what's I mean, there's no there is no direct thing of Trump sending an email or a horribly sharpie written note or <clears throat> excuse me, or audio or whatever of him saying we need to get the Bidens. Let's withhold aid. We're going to pressure Ukraine. But it is absolutely painted. But, you know, would it make a difference not to anybody who has a staked out political opinion that Trump can do no wrong? Right. Or that he's being railroaded by the deep state. However, the thing that's interesting, the only difference here is that, weirdly, um, his party has mostly decided to say, well, okay, that's what happened, but it's not actually impeachable. It's not illegal. Uh, and that's strange. Usually you need video to get to that part, but I think the amount of circumstantial evidence finally crossed what is usually a video or even audio tape threshold. Um, because I know right. I totally agree with you. Is People well, see something, it comes to your eyes in a very different way than... Uh, even still photos. Right. So on the one hand, you know, when a tape does, so it's not right in, a, in an ethical or logical sense that, that, that the repercussions are worse when Ray Rice has tape cold cocking his wife when he actually should have been proven guilty otherwise. But at least when the tape came out, the right thing happened. Um, we In the world where these deep fake videos are easily produced and are indistinguishable, um, uh, from a legit video, I, I worry that we lose that. And then, of mm-hmm. course, the flip side is it's easy to create a fake one, right? It's easy right, to create right. one where some political candidate is is there on tape looking looking like it's the security camera from an elevator and they think they're in private. So that's, you know, it would explain why they're caught talking on tape. And you say, hey, here's somebody from the, uh, you know, the Hilton in, uh, you know, somewhere and they release this tape to us and it shows a presidential candidate talking about taking bribes from China or something like that. Well, and there's the, the Nancy, tape and it's completely yeah. fake, you know. The Nancy Pelosi one that right. happened where it showed her as if she were, you know, it slowed it down. Right. It, it made strategic, it strategic, yeah. It made it seem like she was drunk. 
you know. Or, yeah, and Facebook, I think, wouldn't take that down. They didn't right. refuse to take it down ultimately because it wasn't altered in a way that they considered substantive, although it was obvious. Right. I thought was. they. I, I thought they did take it down eventually. Maybe though. they did eventually. There's something right. about could you use it in your ads if you right. were politically political ads, but you could include it. Right. And it wasn't well done. It really, what there, there, you know, you you could. It it was funny as a gag if it had been presented as a gag, in the in in the same way. Like I'm sure you did did the same thing. Like when we were kids, you would take a tape recorder and record your voice, and if it certain tape recorders would let you play it back slower, slower or faster, and then all of a sudden you sounded like a chipmunk, or you sounded, you know, like you were talking like this. (laughs) And we would, you know, as a kid, I I would play for hours with that. It was it was the craziest thing in the world. We I loved it, but it wasn't. It didn't really sound realistic. The Nancy Pelosi thing was better than that, but it. Anybody who, you know, got sucked into thinking it was real was seeing what they wanted to believe or, or was naive. But it, enough people thought it was real. And the people who made it didn't make it as a gag. They made it as propaganda. And it caught fire enough, you know, and it was really poorly done. You know, it's so easy to imagine a much better done version. I I remember I had this great conversation. This is like, tw- I don't remember, 94. Five something like this. It's a long time ago. I was at some conference and um, we had the uh, oh, I think it was a, an early like web design conference that I was working on, and we had the webmaster for Netscape. That'll take you back. Uh, who attended? Who was a super nice guy. I'm blanking on his name. Super nice guy. Great things to say. And I was chatting with him at some point, and he said, uh, "You know, we're so obsessed with video, and we keep thinking about like when can we stream video? It's like ninety five, right? So when can we stream video that's big enough that people will." will accept it and like it and whatever. And he said, and then I was on this panel with somebody from Penthouse and they said, you know, we can stream like 240 by 320 at five frames per second in grayscale. Our audience is delighted. And he said, I had to really rethink like that. And I was thinking of that with the Pelosi thing where it's like, you know, we could be, we're in an era of, of real, of deep fakes and they could create, um, you know, incredible simulations. They could show Hillary Clinton, shooting Vince Foster or something horrific, right? And and uh, they'll probably do that, whoever the leading Democratic candidate is, and probably Republican uh, Trump. They'll probably be uh, concocted videos because they're so easy to do as we get into the, the general election. But I was like, wow, at some level, all you need is the fidelity of that, like, streaming porn. You need the Nancy Pelosi where they just slowed it down. And people are like, oh, my God, she must really be drunk. Like, no, no. How do we get people to have more credibility? But at the same time, I think you're absolutely right that video conveys a kind of truth uh, that bypasses normal, you know, cognitive processes. And I really, really think, I I think, I see it it is going to be a huge problem. I I am certain of it. I I just cannot imagine. I don't know what the repercussions are going to be. I mean, uh, I I think the ultimate, Mm -hmm. I think the the best case scenario is that video and audio proof of x no longer holds the cachet it it'll take years though for that to happen and that it, people people will start to treat with equal skepticism mm-hmm. vid- video of you know a political candidate drunkly groping somebody in an elevator the same way they would if somebody just said and was quoted as saying hey this 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 person drunkly groped somebody in an elevator right that mm-hmm. the video doesn't give it any more credibility than the quote and that you have to trust the source right it gets back to 
you know, the older days where you, you've really got to build trusted sources and, you know, Joe random Twitter account or <laughs> Jane random Facebook doesn't count. And that we, that's, that's the optimistic view. The pessimistic view is that everybody believes the worst of everything and nobody believes anything and nobody trusts anything. How's that for a, <laughs> a lighthearted take? <laughs> can, can, I, can I segue us into the, and what it feels like is, you put this on the list of, of yep. story topics. I was like, this is like exactly the perfect compliment to the story. The yes. thing I was yes. talking about, which is, uh, well, the Facebook uh, or the face ID, uh, the, the secretive company yeah. that might end privacy as we know it, which is a great headline. And Kashmir Hill is a uh, incredible reporter. She's yeah. now worked across. I can't think how many publications in the modern era. So journalists, as a, as a, have to as a side note, just a parenthetical yeah. to tie in the last time friend of the show, Dan Fromer was on mm, the show. Mm-hmm. Dan pointed out that, uh, cause he's doing his own thing now with the, the, uh, new consumer, I believe it's called. Oh, yeah. Geez, sorry, great. Dan. I'm, sorry, Dan, very, but I think I'm it's a new consumer, which is awesome. Excited. Um, yeah. and it's, he's doing his own thing, but that his observation was that, l- the trend towards journalists and writer types and pundit types like me doing their own thing has sort of gone the other way. And the New York Times and Bloomberg and a few other top and and maybe the Washington Post, which I'd throw in, are sucking in all the good talent. Yeah, uh, that's interesting. I, I would absolutely put Kashmir Hill in that list. I think her most recent thing that I remember reading was at Gizmodo, where yeah, she had written. I think she had done a. I forget what it was, but that she's, was a series where she did the like. I'm going to get off Facebook. Yes, for, I'm going to get. Yeah, I'm going to. I'm going to stop using all of the big five tech company products. Yeah, and what was that like? And it was yeah. like she was living in a right. desert. Right. It was amazing. What happens yeah, she, if you? What happens if you don't oh, use man. Google, Amazon, Facebook? I forget if Apple was on the list or not. Uh, she I mean, might have done it, them in, in rotation, but it was. Yeah. Great. And she's worked across. I was looking up her because she's worked across several. Uh, publications right. all her pieces are yep. must reads yeah. she does incredible i mean so she does those like i would say like almost consumer style investigations like what are the companies learning about right. us and how do we extract ourselves right. then she does the others right. which are like what happens uh when you know if i put myself in this situation what do companies find out about me yeah and that's sort of a little bit of what this this is a little i think a mix of that um and we all need, so I have been saying, and I don't want to like I don't want to pump myself up because I'm not saying things anyone else hasn't said. But a few years ago, when I started seeing the effectiveness of AI-based transcription in its early stages, so I've been using Trint, which is a very uh, it was very inexpensive. They just switched to a more expensive, well, a cheaper but subscription model that is more expensive for ad hoc use, like I used it, and it was pretty good when it started. And it's gotten better, and it's it's not as good as you know, paid transcription services with people who are, you know, professionals and looking at everything. But it's very good for AI-based stuff. And, uh, and then there were some people who had thrown together some podcasts, uh, like Cheap and Dirty, AI-based or, or uh, language learning podcast transcription stuff. And I was like, wow, this is totally amazing. And I knew voice recognition, of course, with Siri and uh, Google uh, Assistant, all these other things had gotten really good, right? So I'm aware of that. And then when I started seeing the really cheap, bad stuff, I had that innovator's dilemma feeling where you're like, oh, yeah, this is where you see something really bad and really cheap, and it eats a bottom of a market, but then it gets better, and it eats from the bottom up. Right. And I thought, oh, here's the point at which. So maybe, I don't know, three or four years ago, I started tweeting, at some point, <laughs> everything, every picture of you that's available publicly online, every piece of audio in which you speak, every video in which you appear 
will be categorized and labeled with you, and someone will be able to search and find every instance of you in any public source that you have ever posted. And it's just a matter of time. It's not a when, or it's not an if, it's a when. And over time, that's become closer and closer. And this story is basically, we're now over that bar. We're now in the next level. It is now a thing. And it's... That Still th- images, but we're moving. You know, video is the next right. But that there's so there's a a, st- a startup I've never heard of to be true. Clearview AI, and they've apparently they have apparently tried to index every publicly available photo that they can find on the internet. I guess billions. I don't even know if it, I, I think they're it saying three three billion, billion maybe three billion images. That yeah, that's what the company claims that they've scraped from Facebook, which, which is YouTube. Feasible. Yeah. Um, Venmo, millions of other websites. Flickr, I'm sure, is, you know, if you're talking about $3 billion, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you take a photo of somebody you have no idea who they are, and you throw it at Clearview, and Clearview comes back and says, here's who it is. And that it's fast, and that they have hooks for augmented reality already. So in theory, you know, you could get the, the you know... I, I, Somebody showed Terminator. I, I'm sure it's been in a bunch of movies. But the idea that you could be wearing some kind of AR goggles or glasses, and as you walk down the street, I, I mean, depending on how fast it is, but we know how fast Google search has gotten for searching the index, but that you can just look at somebody on the sidewalk and they'll know who you are. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you could certainly imagine, absolutely imagine how of interest this would be to retailers because as you enter a physical retail shop, there's certainly it's easy to capture a photo of the people who are coming in. Most of them already have cameras for security purposes. Meanwhile, and you could go into a store of, and you know, pick your type of bookstore or whatever and uh, I mean, a bookstore is probably a bad example, but, you know, some sort of store where you get greeted by a salesperson, uh, uh, let's say a jewelry store or something like mm-hmm. that. And they could already know, you know, and get like some kind of estimate as to, you know, well, is this person, you know, maybe may- is, you know, it get a guess as to how much money you make or something like that and start steering you in a direction that, you know. And you have no idea that they've done this and that the salesperson already knows something about you. Uh, I mean, there's just all sorts of ways that this can go bad. Uh, yeah, and there's already so many ways that that's and, happening. And it defeats human nature's instinct that as you're walking down the street that you're anonymous. You know, mm-hmm. That the only people who recognize you are the people who know you. Well, and this ties in a little bit with, um, I saw, uh, I forget if he's a security researcher or not, somebody tweeting about, I was, I, I've got a cold. I was just thinking about going out to get cold medicine and Facebook or Google just showed me cold medicine ads and I hadn't been searching on it. And I'd read recently, you know, the, there's a myth that Facebook is analyzing audio all the time when you're running the right, app or right. in the background. And, and, you know, I, I don't want to put anything past Facebook, but I don't have the app installed on my, on my phone. And I was off chatting with someone at a cocktail party. I met someone who knew a late friend of mine. I hadn't talked about this person for years. We talked about her, about how much we missed her. I come home, I open up Facebook and there is an ad for her former business. And I'm like, what in God's name? So I know it wasn't listening to me, right? And I know it wasn't fed that way. The explanation that I read recently, and I think this wasn't Cashmere Hall, but it was someone, it was uh, another New York Times reporter, uh, uh, Claire, um, um, I'm blanking on her name, Uh, it'll come to me, but she wrote a piece, uh, co-wrote a piece recently, and we should describe that because of all this location information that's being gathered, it doesn't matter. They don't have to listen to you. They know that um, you just walk to the store 
and what you bought at checkout and came home because they can gather from your apps all your location information. They can associate the purchasing with your unique phone. And even if you don't do it, if 10 people in your apartment building have just gone and bought cold medicine and come back, they're like, oh, there's a bunch of colds in that building. We're going to show him cold medicine ads. And I was like, oh, that makes total sense. They've got complete surveillance on us. Right. So, of course, they don't have to know that I have a cold. They know that a lot of people around me have bought cold medicine and come back to the same location. Uh, and people are so paranoid about it, too, because people do pattern matching. And, and rightly so. People are so paranoid about this. Like, my phone is always listening to me and then does things that it could only know if it was listening to me. Um, I was at a... a Big family gathering. Somebody had a birthday over the weekend. And, and we were a uh, uh, big family gathering over the weekend. And uh, one of Amy's aunts asked me, we, I forget how we got talking about iPhones, but, you know, they know what I do. Um, and they don't typically, I certainly don't talk Apple stuff to them, but if they have questions, you know, they ask me, you know, how mm-hmm. it is. Um, and she said to me, let me ask you this. Um And it was about this topic of the phone listening. And she has an iPhone. uh, And she said that the one day at work, her and her friends uh, were... Oh, it got to the point... It was somebody else brought up the fact that they have the feature on where the... His his commute his schedule is very rigid. He does you know takes his kids to school and then he oh, goes yeah. to work. And it says and he's just amazed by the fact that he gets in and it says, "Hey, it'll take seventeen minutes to drive your kid to school." And he goes, "Damn it, if it doesn't take seventeen minutes." And then it right. says it's going to take you twenty three minutes to get to work. And twenty three minutes later, he's pulling into work and he's like, "It's awesome, but it's a little spooky." Um. And then Amy's aunt said, well, let me ask you this. One day at work, her and uh, she works with a bunch of other women. She said they were just really having a good time and just not like they were doing something that they'd get in trouble for. But they were, I don't know, laughing and laughing. And and they got just got off, you know, just goofing around at the end of the day at work and really, really having a good time laughing. And then she leaves to go home and her iPhone gave randomly gave her said directions to like the local comedy club in town. And she said, and I've never been there. I've never gone there in my life. I didn't ask for directions there. And it just said, it'll take you, you know, 18 minutes to drive to the comedy store in whatever Pennsylvania. Um, and she got freaked out that it was because her and her colleagues had been laughing it up the last half hour at work. And I was like, that's really weird that it would offer you directions there that you'd never, you've never even been there, but that that's not how it happened. It wasn't because you and your friends were laughing, but, but I, I, I don't blame her. She's obviously, she's not a technical person at all. She knows these stories. She's probably seen other spooky things happen where you do X, Y, and Z. And then all of a sudden Facebook or whoever is, you know, showing you ads or giving you suggestions for something that they seemingly would have to know. Um, you know that's obviously a, uh, not what happened, but I, it's totally natural that as a human being you would draw those two together, right? Like that's the way human mm-hmm. beings' minds work. Anyway, and I, well, but I think it fits. It fits into that possibility too, is that it actually could be that when you have a bunch of people together and you're staying late and people are searching for certain things on their phones, right? The the algorithm of whatever provides this kind of stuff says, "Hey, there's a bunch of people." Here's a thing, you know, these kinds of connections are it, what's what's scary, actually, is how 
uh, predictable we are rather than that it's listening yeah. to us. Hey, shocker among shockers, guess who's one of the ba- financial backers of this Clearview company that is already working with law enforcement, by the way. That's who their customers are at this point with this reverse image. Shoot. I knew this before I read the story when it said, I read the paragraph that said, investors include, and I was like, P- Peter Thiel, right? <laughs> and it was like, yep, there he is. Shocker among shockers. But oh anyway, an unknown number of law enforcement agencies are already using this. Uh, I don't know what there is that we can do about it. And then that ties into another story that I just ran into the other day where Nelson Minar, who's been blogging forever. Great person. uh, Brought up that this search engine I have never heard of called. Oh, Yandex. Yeah, Yandex. Yandex is uh, a Russian. It's a search engine in Russia. And in fact, there is just a story also about them because. They apparently do not engage in the same behavior or the same restrictions that other search engines do globally around child pornography. And it's Mm. become a huge issue. Just a big story about that a few days ago. Well, one of the things what Nelson showed was that they do reverse image search on faces, which Mm. is something that Google has claimed for years could do and that they chose not to because of the obvious privacy implications and in Nelson's blog post, I'll put it in the, uh, in the show notes, he took a picture of himself. It works best if you take what I would, uh, just offhand. I think you, everybody will know what I mean. Take like a fake ID picture, like the type of picture that you would take of yourself. If you were going to submit your own new picture for a driver's license or a passport, you know, mostly your head, uh, blank background, that type of selfie. Uh, take one of those, submit it as just, you know, put it on your computer and then go to their image search. And it says there's like a camera button for like, hey, do you want to, you know, start instead of searching for words, search based on a starting image. Mm -hmm. Click that button, upload your selfie. And his came back with, I don't know, it's like they give you like 12 results. But like the (laughs) first the first two or three were definitely him. Yeah. And the other people did look like him. I tried it with one. I sh- I showed you the screenshot. I have to. I guess I'll put the screenshot in the show notes if I can. Um, I don't think there's anything yeah, revealing. It but was pretty good there. The, thinking, John. the the top four pictures were from I think my iPhone review from two years ago. I think it was two years ago where I included some pictures of me that my wife had taken with portrait mode of the iPhone camera. So, but if you had that picture of me that you started, that I started with and had no idea who I was, but just had that picture, if you sent it to Yandex, it, it, the first four or five results and most of the first eight are me. And then you could click through to the origin and figure out, okay, that's John Gruber. The cool thing though, is you can see what you'd look like with a lot of different mustaches. Yeah. Yeah, because the facial type is very similar. It's like, yeah. oh, I wonder if that big handlebar one would work better on me. The, the ones that are wrong are close enough. Not yeah. not like that. You would think is that John Gruber, but they certainly, you know, you could see why a distant family resemblance. Well, or, or at least show me people who look like this guy. But it is absolutely whoa, eye opening. I have never seen this before. I can send a totally anonymous yeah. photo to this site and half a half a second later find out that it's john gruber yeah i did now, a, i tested a couple for myself and it's not as great but it did find oh i don't know like six or seven different ones for two different shots are any are are any of them you 
Yeah, they're. I mean, I'm sorry. It found a bunch and, all, right. and it found six or seven that were me. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it, it, yeah, so it some, somebody who started with your starting point would definitely figure out that's Glenn Fleischman. Oh yeah. I mean, yeah. in so in one case, I mean, I, uh, you're I, saying I, that you're saying that the misses weren't as as Glenn Fleischman-y. They I, they were. I mean, that's a good way to find relatives. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> they were. They're actually a reasonable. I would say, uh, in a dark room, you might think. Uh, no, it was very. It's very funny. Um, yeah, because I've been using reverse image search for for a long time, and I never thought about um, I never thought about the fact that it was actually relatively difficult to do a full image, yeah. you know. And then, of course, it was actually by intent. So, well, it's a real eye opener, and I don't know what we can do. I mean, this seems like it, this is toothpaste that can't go back in the tube. You know, it's a genie that's out of the bottle. I mean, we're not gonna. What are we gonna do? Uh, and 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 is this going does anybody else outside of Yandex who's been sitting on this out of fear, you know, that they don't want to be the first because of the backlash that might happen. Uh, you know, uh, once this sort of thing is out, it's open game, you know, how long now until Google flips the switch that turns it on and how much, right. how much better will Google's version be? Although I would actually argue, I am not usually, um, Let's say, how do you say this? It's like, it's not that I'm opposed to regulation or necessarily in favor of it. And I think there's a lot of things that regulation can't handle. Like I love regulation as a tool uh, to make things fairer and level the playing field when money or power distort things, right? right. So, I mean, that's, a, I don't know, I don't know what, where that falls on the political spectrum. But like, I don't think that, you know, there's all this talk about like, you know, what kind of regulation should be put on tech companies? Obviously, there should be some more indifferent than is now, but not necessarily the kind that Congress wants to do. But with this particular thing, I actually think because uh, the greatest value of it is going to be in industries that are uh, working in the U.S. and then involve U.S. companies, that regulating this as uh, making it illegal for police departments to rely or law enforcement officers to rely on these kinds of databases and to make it illegal to sell it as a service or to strictly regulate it in some fashion, I think it might have an impact because yeah. even though the toothpaste is out of the tube and you can go to Yandex or other international sites potentially and do the same thing, it could not be used legally. Like if a police officer uses it as the basis or should say one of the bases of obtaining a warrant, as is discussed in the story, that it can't be the sole basis to go to a judge, then if that's illegal, then the case, you know, and it's determined the case gets thrown out or a judge refuses to accept it because of the rules of issuing warrants um, or Google being told, you know, maybe they would want to get in the business and then are trying to comply with the law and wouldn't or this company that's in the article uh, might be forced to not offer its services anymore. So I think regulation might be a tool to you know, you can't put the toothpaste back in, but you can make the toothpaste not as valuable to sell, basically. All right. All right. Uh, how are we doing on time? We have time for one more segment on email spam, and then we're out. Oh, I have just a real-time correction really quickly. Is The author I was thinking of at the New York Times is Claire Kane Miller, who is a very fine reporter, uh, although she's moved on from technology reporting. The person I actually meant was Nicole Perlroth. Another excellent security reporter than your times, which they seem to have a ton. But the story I think everyone should read, uh, and we don't have to cover this, you may have talked about this too, is it's the one One Nation tract that was actually produced by the New York Times opinion section as a reported piece. And that's the one that actually had the whole thing about following people and associating purchases and locations. That's by Stuart Thompson and Charlie Warzel, who's uh, also fine people. They have a great 
great bunch of people there. So anyway, that's just my correction. Uh, you know, that was a good story. I did. I linked to that, the One Nation track. We don't have to go into it in depth. That was where they were talking about these shadowy companies that collect location data that they obtain uh, through means we're not, can't really be sure of. But I think it's yeah. most, I think it's mostly through frameworks that third party apps include in in the app that's yeah exactly and, and then and then and the app asks you like let's say it's a weather app and the weather app says can can we have your location data to show you the weather and you say yes because that makes sense and then they also include this framework to a location collection company and it the framework you know takes your data and a unique identifier or some, of some sort or uh and you know tracks your data as you go about and then they correlate it to purchases or something else about you and they can build a profile that shows here's a person who bounces between brooklyn and manhattan oh, yeah. and the hours show clearly show that you live in brooklyn and you work in lower manhattan and here's where you go and all this creepy and stuff here's and, here's somebody going to a building that isn't associated with the cia right but they seem right. to be traveling overseas and then going between you know they track police officers law enforcement and they uh, they identified a celebrity based yeah. on they they found like uh like a concert where there you know a date and a time and a location of the concert and a phone that was going to a hotel and then they i forget who who the artist was but they contacted her you know and asked for her permission and she you know she gave them an on the record interview and said yeah that's definitely me you know that that was me that was where i was staying that was my concert that's creepy af uh, so, so remember, Apple put that new feature in. It says for location. It says uh, it used to be that an app could request permanent permission within the app. Right now, you cannot. And the reason is this is yeah. obviously this. I wondered why Apple had tightened the screws, and apparently, all the ad networks and and ad advertising companies, uh, ad software companies, are peeved about this because it reduces their ability to do targeted ads and make nearly as much money. I gather. But this is exactly why. So, you know, why does a weather app need to know my location all the time? I'll let it use it now, but you have to go into uh, privacy settings in iOS and iPadOS uh, to change that, people, to make it permanent. People get indignant when they were able to make money doing X and then they're no longer to make money doing <laughs> X. They get peeved and, and, and not just peeved. Because uh, you know you get peeved if you made money doing X for any reason and no longer can make the money, but they 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 get indignant about it and feel as though they have been wronged in a way that if X had never been allowed, they wouldn't feel wronged. And exactly, so exactly. I, I wasn't going to go off on this topic, but uh, there there was congressional testimony this week, and uh, the people at uh, Tile testified against oh, apple it was a anti it, story, it yeah. was a congressional investigation into is are the major major you know it's just i guess probably the big five fam facebook amazon apple google uh who am i missing uh mac microsoft uh are they how are they abusing their uh size and you know in anti-competitive ways yeah. and tile testified that apple had had anti-competitively moved against them by including the find my find my feature in iphones because now it makes it's building in the ability to find your lost phones mm -hmm. so you don't need to use a tile product to do it which to me seems like a nonsense argument 
Um, not not nonsense, but it just seems like barking up the wrong tree. Like that's a great feature, and you really can't argue that you should have to buy a third party physical object to get it. To be fair, and they're already preemptively complaining about Apple's supposed tile tracker dinguses that have been rumored for a year but haven't even been announced. And yet they're already complaining to Congress that they're, you know, it's anti-competitive for them to build it into the system. Um, And, you know, and complaints from other people uh, specifically about the thing you just said, that iOS 13 removed the ability for an app to ask you to grant it always on location tracking. Even though the the feature is still there, you just have to go to the settings app, privacy location, and then find the app. And there you could say, if if the app does want always on location tracking, there's where you can grant it. And I do think that the app is allowed to have a shortcut that jumps you there. Like, yeah, that's for sure, because I know I've tapped those, and it's taking right. me to the right spot. But it does. you do have to jump out of the app into the settings app to do it. Uh, and so I think the fact that the, it's more than just telling you instructions for how to get four levels deep into the setting or three levels, whatever it is, into the settings app to do it, the fact that they let you tap a button to jump you there to grant it, uh, I think it's a reasonable compromise, in my opinion, for a what is what has turned out to be a very severely privacy invasive feature um and then the other thing that i think that they are very annoyed about is the new feature in ios i don't think they mentioned it because i don't think there's any Mm. way i don't think there's any way they can mention it without them looking bad (laughs) like like the angle that people always take against apple and sometimes it's true right like there absolutely there are good anti-competitive arguments against apple and a lot of them i think the biggest is the the insistence upon taking 30 to 15 percent of app store transactions and that that an app like uh an ebook reader i mean i you know, pity poor Mike uh, Amazon with Kindle, but like the fact that the Kindle app can't just have a button that jumps you to Safari to buy your Kindle books in Safari. You can't even have that button in yeah, your app is to me anti-competitive. And I really think that that's the sort of thing the government could really, you know, it, make some change, you know, force Apple to, to bend on. Cause I don't think it's right. I think it is anti-competitive and you can't even mention it. You can't even have a thing in your app that says, go to, Oh, uh, you know, my content store or like the, you know, Netflix, again, Netflix is a huge company uh, with billions in revenue, but Netflix yeah. can't even tell you go to Netflix.com to sign up for Netflix. They no, I, let alone I, making it a hot link. I uploaded an ebook to the Apple bookstore a few years ago, the magazine that I ran or the magazine, Marco, the one I bought from Marco, I did a complete archive of the entire run of it, uploaded it as a book, Apple's fine selling it, you know, not that many copies, but it was, you know, I just want to make sure it was out there. And then I get this thing. It's like we have rejected your book and you need to make this change. And the change was there was one embedded link to an Amazon item in a 1,200-page ebook. <laughs> that's crazy. So yeah, I, that's, think that's, I think that's anti-competitive. So I'm not saying Apple is like uh, – I'm not some kind of blind Apple loyalist who's saying Apple has never abused its competitive – you know, position. I think the app store and that 30%, 15% cut, or we get some kind of money from everything that goes through and you can't even link to stuff there. That's something, but this, um, 
always on location thing is clearly a move that they've done for privacy. It is mm-hmm. not it is not a power move to sell more of their own location tracking tiles. Um, but I think the other change in iOS 13 that these people are really peeved about are the periodic reminders where apps that are using your location in the background. Oh, I it, love that. It's, I love it, that. It, it <laughs> is great. It is super great. Uh, With the map and everything. Yeah, and it it's a map and everything. It shows oh, you. Oh, it's really So good. it shows you. So uh, one app that I, I am happy to grant always on location access to is Dark Sky. The weather oh, yeah, right. weather app that gives you warnings for upcoming precipitation or other weather events. Um, I get you know every week or so. I think it's somewhat random, or or the algorithm behind it is you can't just time it. It's not like every Tuesday at three o'clock I get this reminder, but you know every week or two I get a reminder that says, uh, "Hey, Dark Sky has been using your location in the background." Uh, nine times over the last whatever period of time, and then the map shows with little map. markers where they are. Oh, and of, co- of course, every single one of them is at my house because I don't go anywhere. <laughs> but, <laughs> but there it is. Well, hop, hop sing, come on, it's right. gotta be exactly. Um, but I love that. But the people who are you know using your location data apps that might you know. Who knows, you know, like games or something like that, some free right. game. And it just says, hey, we want to use your location data for something. And maybe you okayed it. And then all of a sudden you find out that this weird game that oh you haven't God. played in three months yeah, has been yeah. using your location in the background. Do you want to stop it? And you don't even have to go to the app. You just say, oh, yeah, I don't want that. And you click a button and then it goes away. This this is great. It's not there's uh, it'd be difficult to argue this is anti-competitive unless Apple were collecting and selling the information in the same way. And because of its privacy stance, you know, and sometimes it slips up and sometimes they have to apologize and sometimes they have to change the software. Sometimes they don't realize the consequences. But Apple is not enforcing this. I mean, there, you know, Google and some others might claim Apple has put this in place to hobble uh, the advertising market to force app developers to uh, route more money through with like in-app purchases or higher app right. prices that Apple gets a cut of. That, there is an argument for that. But – you can take two different apps that have the same abilities and functions and one is doing horrible tracking that you have to block and the other is not. It's just doing normal advertising that is not full of horrible trackers. Yeah. And those two exist side by side and Apple isn't doing anything preferential uh, between them if they both meet the rules. What yeah. it's saying is these random apps can't track you all the time in the background without explicit uh, user uh, intervention and it's not trying to make money off that itself. That would be anti-competitive. Did you also see, though, the Bluetooth one is the one that got me. Do you get the Bluetooth pop-up? This app would like to use your Bluetooth settings or Bluetooth. Uh, uh... I did for a little bit, but I don't think yeah. I have many apps that are trying to do it. I've, I've there were some it. weird ones, yeah. the CNN app and some yeah. other apps, and I was like, I don't know why these would need. There's apparently there's an innocent explanation about, um, oh, I don't know. There's something. It's it's not actually trying to communicate with your devices but it has to use some library, or whatever. But I, yeah, when I first fired up uh, iOS 13, I think I had like 20 different apps were asking for Bluetooth apps access, and none of them except one podcast app needed it. I've heard that some of that was for location tracking too, though. So like when you'd enter like a retail building or something like yeah, that, the they, they might, yeah, yeah. The, yeah, they might have the eye beacons, and then if the app is still running in the background because you just checked CNN. It would check in, you know, that there was some, you know, I re- I do think I don't think Apple added that idly, you know, just out of kicks. Oh, no, I think they were sharing. Yeah, I think there was a standard library for um, 
for iBeacon and similar things that were being used broadly, although iBeacon is kind of, I don't know how widely deployed that was, but I wouldn't be surprised if retailers uh, have Bluetooth beacons that are not for information, but for tracking, and they get tracked through that mechanism to provide location uh, information. But yeah, so I don't want to run the CNN app and have it be doing Bluetooth tracking yep. of me because they happen to include that library, if that's what was going on. I, it's absolutely shocking to me, Glenn, that you're on the show and we're running long. But right. uh, I got to take a break here and thank our third and final sponsor. And I have one more major topic I wanted to talk about. Uh, but first, I want to thank our friends at Squarespace. Hey, it's still New Year. I know Larry David thinks it's too late to say Happy New Year. But I still say Happy New Year to you. Uh, and New Year is when people naturally, it's just a human instinct. You set new goals. You make resolutions. Might be a time to start a new business, start a new side gig, uh, launch a new creative project. Well, anything that needs a website for your new project, your new job, your new business, whatever it is you're doing, start it at Squarespace. That's my suggestion. Make your next move there. Go to Squarespace. You get a free trial. Last 30 days. You can build your entire website in their WYSIWYG tools right there in the browser. Choose from tons of award-winning professionally designed templates that scale from mobile to desktop in all sorts of styles. You can customize them completely with your own brand, your own style, in any way you want. You add the features to the site that you want. If you need a store, add a store. It takes care of all the commerce, all the security stuff for you. If you need a gallery, because what you're building is some sort of portfolio for your design work of some sort, they've got that for you. You want to have a blog, you want to host a podcast right on your site, they've got all of that right there. And for the stuff like a blog or a podcast that gets updated regularly, you can post right through the Squarespace interface as you create new entries in your site. Everything. Really, soup to nuts right there in Squarespace, including also award-winning technical support. So next time you need to make a, a new website or somebody you know comes to you and says, hey, can you help me make a new website? Send them to Squarespace. It's the easiest way to get started. 30 days free and with special code TALKSHOW at checkout, you get 10% off. Everything is intuitive, easy to use. Start your free trial today. Go to squarespace.com slash talk show, squarespace.com slash talk show. And remember that code talk show 29 or 30 days later when your free trial's up and you'll get 10% off your first purchase, which it could be prepaid for an entire year. You get like entire month free over a month. Squarespace.com slash talk show. I thank Squarespace for their continuing support of the talk show. All right. My last topic of the day. And you and I were talking about this offline oh, yeah. <laughs> because we yeah. ran into it, which is that, is it my imagination or is spam filtering for email getting worse? I missed emails in the last week from you where you were asking, hey, do you want to rec record the show? <laughs> <laughs> which, yes, I did. Here we are. <laughs> Here we are. Uh, and Jason Snell, I missed all. He does the annual report card on, you know, the oh, Apple yeah. annual report card, which I love and I love to participate in because, A, I, I love to hear the answers of everybody. But, B, it's like a free column idea for Daring Fireball by just putting my entire answers in there. 
And of course, he sent the original thing out a month ago, and I thought, ah, I'll do it after the new year. And then all of his reminder emails to me, like last last call for those of you, you know, I, I maybe the reason it went to spam was because it was a, a, a message that wasn't just to John Gruber. Hey, Gruber, you know, what oh. the fuck? Send it in. It was like to un, you know, the the BCC recipient list of everybody he had asked to participate who hadn't yet submitted an answer. I guess that's why. But there is absolutely no way that emails from you, from an email address you've been using as long as I've known you, <laughs> and Jason Snell using an email address that I've known for, I think, 20 years, maybe right, more, right. That's great. to my main oh, email man. address that I've been using yeah. since I registered the daringfireball.net domain in 2002. Like this, it's not like they're going from or to new email addresses, and it's not like the content of any of them. I mean, again, the one thing about Jason's is that it was like to unknown recipients, but that really shouldn't have flagged well, to the spam. And yours, well, I have no idea. No, I zero did ask idea. if you wanted to buy some Cialis too. So there is <laughs> no, you did not. I, I have noticed this recently, but for a while. And my email currently and for years now has been backed by Gmail. I don't ha I don't use a gmail.com address as my address, but my main email accounts are backed by separate Gmail accounts. And the main reason I did it was for spam filtering, um, which I had found originally was really excellent. And I so excellent that I had fallen out of the habit of eyeballing my spam mailbox. Um but recently I have found I have found that I absolutely have to do the old fashioned thing and visually scan and like I told you it's you know at least a th you know 2000 emails a month total you know so all my addresses combined and I have to sit there and visually scan it and I it, things jump out I have missed I mean in addition to ones from like you and Jason uh sponsorship inquiries you know from people you know oh, companies man. that want to sponsor Daring fireball, you know, actual business opportunities. Call, call back to the start of this episode. The Jeopardy introduction or audition notice was in my spam filter. I almost deleted it. I was like, <laughs> oh, spam from somebody claiming to be Jeopardy. I'm like, oh, my God, wait. And if I deleted that, hey, that would have been a, a life experience and 30 something thousand dollars lost. So, uh, yeah, I don't know if it's gotten worse. Now, that's a good question. I don't know how you measure that. But you would think after all these years that Google would have automatically whitelisted incoming recipients you corresponded with, you know, where you hadn't marked it as spam for that long. It's the same addresses, even if they're caching it as they should be in your own account. Um, I use Fastmail, which I've used for many, many years uh, for to back up my accounts. And they um, have a pretty aggressive anti-spam strategy in terms of dealing with their own customers. And they seem to operate uh, really good filters. Like I don't get nearly as much spam as you do. And I have, I use, they have spam assassin behind it. I put some rules in place uh, for the most egregious stuff, but even then, you know, some stuff winds up in their junk filters. Some stuff winds up in, I use spam sieve on my Mac. Um, but what I find is that Google in particular, Gmail at periods of time is more aggressive. So, and I don't know if it's just me. It seems like it is often, uh, but there's been points where like for six months, every email just about I sent, to someone on Gmail, I had to follow up with, with like a text because it went straight to their spam filter and then it stopped and then it was fine for long periods of time. And just recently, yours is not the only message I've sent to someone using a Gmail account where I think it wound up in, uh, in the spam filter. 
And I I find that there are some that I correct them and it doesn't get uncorrected. Mm-hmm. Um, so you should be whitelisting. Why isn't it listing to your whitelist? I don't know. I, I always was under the impression that all you have to do to tell Gmail that uh, like I'm using the Apple Mail app, not Gmail's app, but that if you move a message from junk to your inbox, it's saying this is not junk because uh, I don't know how else they could interpret that. But like. Dave Weiner started sending out uh, daily summaries of his scripting news. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I guess I should unsubscribe because I follow scripting news in RSS, and that's where I would naturally do it. But I'm just, I'm just intrigued by how he's using an email newsletter. I, I, it's just like a recurring theme for the last four months. And I, I'm not going to say I'm on the cusp of doing a Daring Fireball email newsletter, but I'm, I've noted the resurgence in email newsletters, and I talked to Dan Fromer about it, and his main thing is a newsletter, and Ben Thompson's main thing is the newsletter, the daily update at Stratechery. And paid versus paid and free, there's a resurgence of interest in newsletters. Um, and one of my reasons for, for you know, I've, I've been saying this over again, I have this theory that the reason people really like reading email newsletters is you click on the newsletter and you read it and it scroll down and you're done. And there's not, nobody's popping up anything that covers the email and says, will you subscribe to our newsletter or will you subscribe to this or will you, we're collecting cookies. Okay. Or no. I mean, I don't, I, I have told the goddamn guardian that I'm okay uh-huh. with their cookies thousand freaking times every time i go to their website i have to click three things on most websites just to read the goddamn article the fact that i can just click on an email and there it is unobstructed and i scroll down and then i'm done and that's it i really think that's part of the resurgence but anyway so i want to keep getting dave's daily updates and they keep going to junk (laughs) i don't know what to do to make it stop no, I know this from, uh, you know, I used to, for many years, uh, some weird little software I wrote, Powered Tidbits mailing list, and which has tens of thousands of people on it. And as you know, Tidbits, the longest continuously distributed email newsletter on the internet, we're pretty sure. Like, it seems like there was one that might have been longer, and it's gone. So they've got a lot of experience with dealing with spam. I mean, Adam is very experienced understanding what makes things go wrong. Uh, and now is using a service at long last, so is not uh, running it uh, himself. But um, I, I had a, wrote this thing that did some f- sophisticated, or I thought, uh, spam processing or, or a bounce processing and seemed to not trigger spam filters. And Tribbits ran off that for like 10 years, I think. And even then, it would just be a mystery. Like one week, we would do nothing differently. And like all AOL users would be would be uh, unsubscribed or blocked. Or we get a thousand bounces from one outfit. And, and I'm still seeing it. I, so I use FastMail, as I said. And I, um, and I get tidbits. And half the time, it winds up being categorized as sort of light spam. So I see it. It's in my spam filter. It's not deleted with a high score, which I've got set. And I'm thinking, how is Tidbits? I've I've received right. <laughs> a thousand issues of Tidbits, most of those at my FastMail address or at FastMail servers, and it's absolutely compliant. And Adam sends out huge amounts of email uh, every week, so he knows. And um, it's a mystery. Um, I I was telling you in our show notes here, our, our pre-show discussion is, uh, I think it was the late '90s that I wrote an article saying. Um, I'm really concerned about email balkanization because spam filters and other things might prevent people from sending email from one place to another. I'm like, well, it's still going on. No one's figured out a way 
I mean, there are all those proposals, some of which are used uh, that do different ways of validating domains and senders and some of it's public key based and some of it's in DNS. And this was supposed to be a way to reduce spam by having some kind of verified path. And even if spammers used it, the people who were verified would be able to have an identity that was cryptographically proven or, or matched. So you could say, well, this domain is cool because we can confirm all this email actually was issued by this domain because they've got the private key and we'll whitelist this whole domain. So another spammer or a spammer might use a domain and have their own private key. And we know it's verifiably from this spammer, but they can't fake being from this verified domain. And they just all, you know, email is still so disparate. There's no centralized anything or authority, right. which is great because then you don't get advertising overlays and cookie requests and all that. But it also means that all these proposals to improve uh, the way in which like ham can be identified as ham, ham sees ham, uh, does not, has not matured this many years into it. Right. And there's so much of my, sp and, and what makes going through it manually and just visually scanning it so tedious is that at least I, I would guess 98% of it is so obviously spam, you know, yes. like any human being with a hundred percent certainty would say this is without ever opening it. Just, just looking at the sender and the subject. I mean, literally I'm looking at it right now. Uh, Here's one from ZZY seven one two seven one two seven one two. The next one's from Zing Z sixty six <laughs> IXHLVBM at IEKH. I mean, I don't even know how they think it's going to work. I, I mean, I, I don't so, know who in the world would open this, even if they didn't have machine, any. Yeah, why has machine learning not solved this? Because right. these are all readily identifiable. Five straight ones that are all just random. Random strings of letters, and then the next one is from late night peeing. <laughs> I, I'm not making this up. That's not my favorite late night show. No, that's America's least favorite late night show. Late Conan. night, late night peeing. <laughs> it's from below Conan's. Yeah, show. it's it's like you. I, I don't know what to do about it. I don't know. But I, I, I would opt into some sort of system. I, I don't know. It's too late. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, uh, it, it's email. It's like the, in some ways, like I said, email is 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 having a resurgence in terms of newsletters. But as a fundamental level, like the the initial optimism of the early Internet of everything being open and you, anybody with yeah. it. You know, is just it's email has just suffered under the weight of that forever. You know that anybody with an SMTP server can send email to anybody with an email address, and it just goes there. Uh, is yeah, it's somebody's going to solve it, I think, and not like it's it's. But I mean, these are the trade offs, right? There's there's always extremes. So if you you know Facebook is unreliable, you can't think that anything you post there gets delivered to people uh, unless you pay for, you know, boosting it. And then even then you don't know. So you're going to have 200,000 people liking your page and only 500 of them see a post, right? That kind of thing goes on. And email is great because there's no intermediation, except that the spam is so bad that it mixes your ham and your spam and you're, you're not getting it. Like these are, these are our extremes, but I do think that I think we, I don't think we have seen well enough applied uh, machine learning and training because so much spam is obvious, as you say. I do not get why 
and uh, why this is not more identifiable. And I expect that at some point there will be a breakthrough. I mean, remember how, so before deep learning came in as a, the most effective technique for uh, artificial intelligence a few years ago and made voice recognition and, and uh, a lot of other things, uh, uh, image recognition and so forth, so much better, like, you know, a, a 20%, 25% better, got us a lot more, to, a lot closer to the 100% score. Before deep learning, remember how terrible everything was. All the yeah. all the recognition was, it was statistically based. There were all these things and, you know, you'd speak and it would give you the, the egg freckles with the, yeah. the Newton joke for handwriting recognition or whatever. Well, so deep learning came in and it made a huge difference, but I don't feel like email has made that leap. And I know that Google's there using was, machine learning. There was and, the and leap. Yet, there was the leap with Bayesian filtering, whatever that yeah. had. But that was really the breakthrough. It was like, holy shit, this works, whatever yeah, Bayesian stati- filtering is. It's statistical analysis using right. certain kinds of like measures of frequency. And it and then what happens is spam makers would run their email through the same Bayesian filters and tweak them until they found ones that got lower scores because they introduced – you know that's why you see part of Moby Dick at the bottom of email messages and, yeah, I re- and so forth. And I remember you know, I was at – Barebone Software working there, you know, recent guest mm. Rich Siegel, uh, which yeah. was a great episode. I don't know if you listened to, but man, that was one of my favorite yeah, episodes. Um, but I remember when I was there, Mailsmith was still in, you know, an act, a, a successful product. Uh, that is still my email client. Is it really? See, it the one is. thing I miss about, I, and I miss, see this, uh, man, do I miss this, is using Mailsmith with spam sieve you'd get a score and then you could sort your spam mailbox by the score and it made visually double checking it so much easier mm-hmm. because yes. all of the actual ham that got incorrectly flagged as spam was at the top and all the obvious stuff was at the bottom and there's no I can't figure out any way in Apple Mail to get anything similar to that and I don't know mm-hmm. what to do about it but anyway but I remember before Bayesian filtering we had like a uh, uh, like a, it was like it, as a tech support thing, like a, a a collection of like filters, like just manually set oh, up, like yeah, yeah. like if the subject matches this pattern or if the sender, you know, like a couple of regex patterns, and you know, based on the headers, and and for a while it really worked well. We had like you know, you could just download this filter and add it to Mailsmith, and all of a sudden you know, your spam problems were mostly solved. And it it was really just effectively just like eight, eight if the message matches blank statements. Uh, you know, eventually that fell apart. You know, they found ways around it. And the Bayesian filtering was a great leap forward. But I feel like you're right. We need we need the next one. And I guess it has to be machine learning. But it's it's not there. I don't know. Maybe I'm nuts. Maybe it's just me. Maybe it's, you know, now that I've found a couple, I've found a couple of messages recently over the last like two months in my spam and I'm panicked about it. Maybe it's just me, but I'm on a slack with some technically, you know, some friends on, you know, that I've asked other, you know, similarly technically oriented long-term email users have all, all said the same thing, either that they think it's getting worse or they're convinced it's getting worse. Oh, the other, I would say the, the, um, Another factor could be that spammers are getting better again. They're getting better at filtering through, which makes every time spammers get better, spam filters get worse because they produce more false uh, positives that way. I will say this, that I'm not seeing an increase of spam getting into Um, my inbox. The The only problem I'm seeing is good email getting flagged to spam. Oh, but that can happen is you, if you, uh, the filters could be improving, so they're not passing more through. So they're, 
still good on false negatives, right. but they're bad on false positives, which is not kind of what you want. Like, I think you'd rather have fewer false positives and more false negatives, not like a thousand yeah. uh, spams drop in, but I'd rather get one or two yes. spams to get a hundred percent of my, <laughs> my ham. Give right. me my ham. Right. Better that a guilty man, a, a hundred <laughs> guilty men go f- go free than an innocent man be put in jail. Yeah. Exactly. That's it for mail. I like it. All right. Uh, so, Glenn, before I let you off the hook, uh, you are people can if they enjoy your voice on this show, if they, they enjoy my voice. They can hear you, and this is odd coincidence, and it really is. Uh, but you've been guest hosting the Election Ride Home podcast. Yeah, that's right. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, Chris Higgins was the uh, founding host. Of it, and he's had to step away for family reasons, and everything's okay, but he needs to focus on family. So um, I am stepping in for a bit uh, to do this podcast because, you know, because I can I do everything in my career. And uh, the, the folks that ride home, um, uh, Brian McCullough, I was on his, um, he's got a great internet history podcast, is great because no one else is really doing the oral history of the internet comprehensively. I think. I mean, I don't want to say he's the only one, but I think he's the only one doing it at this level of detail. So he's talking with early people in, in the Internet, e-commerce companies, whatever. And so I came on a couple of times to to shoot the breeze about um, some of my early experiences and, and things. And it's great because then I'm like, oh, now I've told him it's there forever. So he's been doing the Tech Meme Ride Home podcast for uh, a while. And I've substituted it on, on that a few times when he's had uh, vacation or uh, obligations, jury duty and the like. And uh um, so election ride home is just, it's the idea is just a summary, you know, it's, I think, and I have this feeling too, it's very easy to get overwhelmed because there's too much news. There's a, a year's worth of news every day now, right. Mm-hmm. About everything. And, um, so the idea is, you know, it's a 15 minute podcast about everything that happened in elections today. And it's very interesting to wake up in the morning and go, okay, kind of what's, what's happening. You know, sometimes there'll be, um, like the presidential debates, I was covering that last week, and it's like, okay, how do I summarize two hours plus of this in a way that's useful for people who didn't watch it and might be useful for people who did, but still make it, you know, pithy and bring in some sound bites and and not have it be facile. Like, here's kind of what you need to know. Like, what is the national discussion ostensibly being today? But some other times I wake up in the morning and it's like, you know, there's a new impeachment thing. Pelosi's sending the articles to the Senate. Um, some, you know, a booker drops out or whatever. And um, so every day is a new adventure and mystery. But the goal is to, like, make it approachable. So you put on your headphones on your commute home and in 15 minutes you're done instead of, you know, reading a thousand. And you may still read a thousand stories, but I, I'm trying to help people. I feel like it's a and it's a service to keep people from having to fully enmesh themselves in it every day. And how long is the gig? It's uh, well, it's ongoing. I think they're looking for a, a permanent host for the show. Um, you know, because I've got a lot of his. You know, I got a lot of different things I'm working on. Well, and this uh, also really, sounds. I know yeah. it's like, oh, it's only 15 minutes as opposed to the three hours you and I have been talking right now. But oh, I, I can only imagine how much work it is on a daily basis to boil all of it down to 15 minutes. It would actually yeah, probably like, be less work to do a three-hour podcast where you just ramble on about it, whereas oh, no, opposed to. It's, I read a script down. and everything. Yeah, right. it's, I read a script. I mean, it's like a four to six hour uh, cycle to do right. an episode. And, you know, and so it's really it's exciting as somebody who's been a, a freelance writer for a long time. I've never done daily reporting. I've only done stuff for weeklies or sometimes on deadline you know, overnight or something. Right. Uh, but I did a gig for Fortune uh, from mid 
mid 2018 to early 2019 before they got sold to a mysterious Thai billionaire. No kidding. No kidding. <laughs> they they just rebooted with a new design and and they it's a great publication. Some great people, great editors. I was working with there, but they were running a a kind of a daily newsroom within shifts, and so I was I was writing kind of breaking news for seven months for a few hours every day. And that was fascinating to me and a little overwhelming because my pace is, you know, I'm often, I've been describing myself as breaking news from the 19th century because I'm always like, hey, you know, I just discovered some printers were poisoned in printing this newspaper in 1838. I must write this story. Um, so the election ride home is, it's a great way to stretch my muscles. And um, and it's a fun, I feel like it's a little bit of a service thing and giving people, you know, that, that snippet is... Um, I think a lot of the political podcasts tend to be discussion and longer, so you have to commit yourself. And there's some of them I really yeah. I like, like Love It or Leave It, I listen to every week and uh, a few others. But um, anyway, it's a well, very specific It's a very specific remit for this podcast. I will, uh, I, I have to disclaim it, but it's just an odd coincidence. But the sponsor of the previous episode of this show, last week's episode with Merlin Mann, was Tech Memes Ride Home. Which is fr another ride home podcast. I actually purposefully juggled the sponsorship schedule so that we would wouldn't have Tech Meme Ride Home sponsoring the episode where you Glenn talk about uh, election ride home. But I mean it. They sponsored last week's episode. They're not sponsoring this week's episode. But the ride home podcasts are really really tight. And it's it's like your own little private NPR for your area of interest. So if you would rather hear about election news on your ride home, then. Uh, tech news on your ride home. Election ride home is a great thing. And if you're, you know, if your ride home is thirty minutes, you could listen to both. Right. There's a celebrity one also. They're, they've, you know, they uh, they have public, a great not public news. They raise a little money because yeah. they want to do the they want to do a bunch of these because yeah. uh, you know there are long podcasts like this one that yeah. get into things, and there are short podcasts. I think the news one is interesting because I think that that often I often don't listen to news podcasts because I like to I prefer to read it. I if I knew. You know, in some areas, like I would love a like a security news podcast, mm. just not enough interest. That was just like whatever security news happened that day. Just give me the boil it down, then I'll go and drill and find like an index for my ears. <laughs> That's what I want. Uh, the other thing I know you wanted to mention was the uh, Tiny Type Museum. I I did. I wanted to thank. Well, actually, I want to thank during Fireball listeners because <laughs> many of you. Well, I shouldn't say many. In relative proportions, not many of you, but some of you um, have been great supporters of the project, and it's uh, it's we're going to ship very soon. Um, I know this is unheard of a Kickstarter that ships <laughs> more or less on time, um, but I've been thanking past Glenn. So the, we did the Kickstarter in February last year. Uh, myself and Anna uh, Robinson has been making the wooden cases handmade wooden cases for the type artifacts that go into it. And um, she is nearing, we're like the very final stages of final production for that. And I've got, my basement is full of like the poor letter carrier. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'll just describe it in one line. You know, it's the tiny type museum and time capsule. It's a collection of printing artifacts, like wood type and molds from which type are made and little pieces of photo type. And um, I've got a CD-ROM P22, the type foundry. It's been around for 20 plus years. They sold me very inexpensively. Uh, CD-ROMs. So every type museum is going to have a 1990 era CD-ROM with a personal license to use the font that's on the CD-ROM if you can read it. Um, so it's been a it's been a hoot. And I did a book along along with it as well, and uh, it's being printed. This one's being printed in England right now. It's uh, and so that's the anyhow, one you mentioned that was actually it is actually being printed in letterpress. Yeah, like it was set in hot metal in uh, in uh, North Yorkshire. 
yeah. and uh, where there's the printer I work with as a, a former employee who has all the typesetting equipment now, and um, it's being printed in London, London proper, and then be bound in Germany. And actually, when the Brexit situation was happening, uh, if it had crashed out in October, I was really worried about how my <laughs> printed pages were going to get to Germany for binding. <laughs> you might have which to is sm- smuggle them out. <laughs> well, are you talking like, could I fly there and put Imagine- them in a... <laughs> Imagine getting busted for smuggling like, something as as esoteric as international book smuggler. Um, so, so the postman, this poor letter carrier, post lady, I'm sorry, postal carrier rather. Um, we have a variety of postal carriers and deliverers. Um, I'm buying lead, brass, <laughs> bronze. And so the Light, guy, like, lightweight, lightweight it's, stuff. It's like a joke. It's like the box is one of those tiny USPS. Like everybody in the United States who deals in this stuff ships with priority mail because it's un- almost unlimited weight for the size. So you can see the guy going oh, up the stairs and he hands it off to me like, oh, I'm sorry. It's like 40 pounds of lead you just gave me. Uh, so my basement is full of all the artifacts that are going to get sorted into sets. But um, people can been, uh, people can still get in, right? There are, yes, I, the edition is about 100, and 80 of them are now, over 80 of them are now right. uh, pre-ordered or sold in the Kickstarter, so tinytypemuseum.com. Ba- basically, if you even know how cool it is that Glenn is having the book physically letterpress, <laughs> if you even know what that means, you should absolutely go check out tinytypemuseum.com. And if not, well, then it's probably not for you. It's It's been fun, though, because I've had all these great conversations. A lot. There's a lot of... Older folks, particularly, you know, usually men who are working in the printing industry or had grandparents work in the industry. And I have these great conversations with people like, oh, my God, my father used to be a typesetter or someone telling me. I had this great, you know, Chris Finn, who used to write for Macworld, uh, who now uh, is at um, uh, uh, DK, uh, D, DK Th- DC Thomas. I'm getting the name. It's a, a major media company in the U.K., uh, and you can still see they still have a building on Fleet Street. They're like the only they don't have reporters there. But they, when you walk onto Fleet Street in London, the, the home of newspapers in London where there are no newspapers left, they still have a uh, uh, D.C. Thomas Thompson is the number. Anyway, uh, Chris Finn got did recorded a short podcast for me with a colleague of his who was just old enough to have worked on old letterpress uh, when newspapers were printed by letterpress and had this story about how they put the breaking news in with this special little thing you would like stick into the running press with just a little bit of copy that said extra, extra breaking news, sports, sports <laughs> score. He recorded, it's so nice, he recorded a, a short podcast, put it on YouTube uh, about that. So anyway, it's been great just talking to folks about this. People have fond memories. And anyway, I appreciate everyone's support on it because it's, it's been a great year. To, to, 2019 was incredible to work on this. So thank you all. All right, my thanks to Squarespace for sponsoring this show. Go to squarespace.com slash talk show. Start your own website. Uh, Clear, the absolute best way to get through airport security. And uh, the first sponsor of the episode, who I can't remember. Hover. Uh, It's coming to me, Glenn. It's coming to me. All right, hover. Hover.com slash talk show where you could go and register a domain name and get a 10% discount with that link. Uh, Thank you, Glenn. You've been extraordinarily generous with your time and uh, your personal insight into Jeopardy. (laughs) What a great show. Thank you very much. Always a pleasure, John. Thank you very much.